When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello to all of you wonderful Unshaken Saints out there. I'm Jared Halverson, and after taking almost three hours of your time last week to cover two sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, I really hope you've come back. Have you forgiven me yet? I've read a few comments where people are like, who has three hours to study their scriptures? Well, some of you do, and many of you don't. I, I, for those who don't, I hope that you spread this out and let it be part of your daily scripture study. Part of what takes so long is our approach, and part of what took so long last week is the content. As far as approach is concerned, I hope, if nothing else, you've learned over the course of these videos just how much truth and power can be packed into a single verse. In fact, into a single phrase or even a single word, a punctuation mark for that matter. In fact, it reminded me of something I didn't mention to you when we were talking a couple weeks ago about the restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood. If you remember at the end of Joseph Smith history, there's that long Oliver Cowdery footnote in his beautiful eloquence describing the things that Joseph Smith put much more simply at the end of Joseph Smith history. But at the, in the last paragraph of that footnote, there are three phrases that Oliver Cowdery gives us that to me describe scripture study beautifully. He talks about one touch with the finger of God's love, one ray of glory from the upper world, and one word from the mouth of the Savior. I love those phrases as they apply to scripture study. Honestly, it's my prayer every week that as we go verse by verse through the scriptures, you will feel touched by the finger of God's love. I mean, forget about the brother of Jared. He got to see that finger extend through the veil and touch those stones with light. But to touch our hearts with love, did you feel that last week as we talked about the worth of the human soul? Or when we open our scriptures and sense a ray of glory coming from the upper world? Some, just a ray of light that touches the eyes of our understanding and helps us see truth in places that we've never seen it before. And then that last phrase, one word from the mouth of the Savior. Not only are we justified to slow down and, and ponder a single word, but we're invited to. Like I said, if there's one thing I hope that you've learned from the approach that we're taking to Scripture, it's the power of a single word. When I was in college and really learning how to study my scriptures for the first time, my teacher said, there will be days you spend your entire half an hour, that's what we did every day, was a half an hour of scripture study, that you'd spend an entire half an hour on a single verse. And I laughed to myself thinking, I'm a slow reader, but nobody's that slow. Well, to this day, I remember the first verse that I spent an hour on, and I still wasn't done after the hour. I just had other things I had to get done. So to come back to that same verse the next day, there are rays of light there are fingers of love. There is power in a single word. And I pray that you're feeling that and, and finding words that I've passed over. And as far as last week's concerned, if that's the approach that we're taking basically every week, the particular content of last week, it's hard to beat section 18 and section 19. The worth of a soul, the apostolic desires, the importance of Christ's name, what damnation really consists of, Christ's personal experience in Gethsemane, 
not coveting your own belongings, so many things. If you didn't make it through the end of the material last week, which I totally understand, I really would invite you to go back because those revelations are worth all the time and attention that we can give them. Now, I'm really hoping, though, for, for all of our sake, that today will be a little bit shorter. At least it will be simpler because we basically only have one thing to talk about, and that's the church. Section 20, 21, and 22, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or as it was called at the time, the Church of Christ, is the singular focus. But before we get into those revelations themselves, can I back up and see kind of the 30,000-foot view of church in general? Because we live in an interesting time period in the history of religion. Throughout most of history, religion has been a given. In fact, it wasn't even considered religion. It was just reality as part of our lives. It was the air people breathed. But we live in an age of compartmentalization, where we have our, our work life, or our school life, or our personal life, or our religious life. And that last part of our lives is becoming last on the list of priorities. They do sociological surveys of religion every so often, and find what are the churches that are growing and shrinking, and what's happening in the, in the world of faith. Well, the fastest growing church is the non-church. They call it the rise of the nuns, and they're not talking about Catholic women in a convent. This is N-O-N-E-S. When they're filling out questionnaires and there's a list of what is your religious affiliation, the number that is soaring over the past few decades is none. No religious affiliation at all. And that's especially true among the rising generation. You see these kinds of trends all over the place. In the United States, they talk about the decline of denominationalism. We see a rise of what could be called hybrid congregations, kind of a, a combination of two different denominations to try to attract more people to church. It's just interesting to watch what's happening in our society. You ever talk to somebody about coming to church and they say, oh, I, I don't believe in organized religion. Of course, whenever I hear that, I kind of laugh to myself thinking, actually, it's probably disorganized religion that you're doubting. I don't know if you've ever seen organized religion until you've come to the Latter-day Saints. I remember reading somewhere years ago that in the early 20th century, somebody pointed out that there's nothing more organized on the planet than the LDS church, with the possible exception of the German army. And I don't think they meant that in a good way. Or beyond organized religion. Have you heard this one? Oh, I'm spiritual, not religious. Now, I love the first half of that statement. I'm so grateful that people are holding on to their spirituality. But since when have spirituality and religiosity become mutually exclusive? But this, to me, is another one of those contraries that we need to prove. In fact, to me, it's that the, at the core of Christianity's cross. If you picture taking up our cross daily, to me, that is setting this vertical post in the ground and then attaching a horizontal cross beam to it. The vertical is the first great commandment to love God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. And the horizontal is like unto it. It's to love our neighbor as ourselves. The first reaches up, the second reaches out. And it does it in that order. That's why, that's why I love those who say, I'm spiritual. If you don't connect to heaven first, you don't have a whole lot to give to others around you. There's nothing to hang that cross beam upon. At least it doesn't lift those horizontal efforts very far above the ground. But on the other hand, if you don't have that horizontal reaching out and all you are is a vertical post, you can connect with God, but you're not connecting anyone else to Him. So put spirituality and religiosity side by side. And what do you see? The spiritual have a relationship with God. The religious have a relationship with others. Spirituality brings us transcendence, but religion engages us in service. In the first, we learn the gospel. In the second, we live it. 
my spirituality gives life to my religiosity. And my religiosity gives structure to my spirituality. Clayton Christensen, the great Harvard business professor and world's greatest member missionary, once uh, wrote an article where he talked about why I believe and why I belong. And I was so grateful for his distinction. That's the spiritual and the religious. Why I believe, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, my connection to heaven. But why I belong, that's the church of Jesus Christ, my religious community with all the opportunities to serve and, and lift and make a difference in people's lives. It's like what James says about faith without works being dead, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Well, I'll show you my spirituality through my religiosity. Church is what makes that visible. Hopefully we see that in God's eyes, we're not supposed to separate the two. In fact, think about what Paul says into the Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Christ gave himself for the church. And yet also notice the analogy, the parallel that Paul draws. No wonder Jesus loves the church. He's married to her. Honestly, if you let that sink into your soul, it will change the way you view church. Because it's not just the marriage between Christ and his people. It's also the, the relationship that produces covenants within us. Typically, where there's a husband and a wife, there are children involved. In fact, I taught this at length last year in the Book of Mormon in Mosiah chapter 5. You might want to go back and watch that video. Because in Mosiah 5, it talks us about us becoming children of Christ, begotten sons and daughters of His, through our covenants. You see, we're already children of heavenly parents. But when we become children of Christ through covenant, if He's our Father, guess who our mother is? The church. We make covenants in the name of Jesus Christ and through the church of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite connections there is to the proclamation to the world on the family. Because in that document, what does it say a father's role is? To provide, preside, and protect. And Jesus does all of those for us. He provides every good gift. He presides over our salvation. He protects us from the consequences of sin and death. Meanwhile, what's a mother's role? To nurture. And honestly, I don't know a better word to describe what the church does for all of us as it nurtures our spirituality through our religiosity, as it helps us grow up in God through opportunities to serve and to learn and to, and to develop. Honestly, that marriage between Christ and the church is one of the most beautiful relationships you can see in Scripture. It's what Hosea was trying to dramatize. It was what Jeremiah and Ezekiel were trying to call Israel back to. It's what Jesus is teaching in all of his parables that draw upon marriage and what John the Revelator was doing in Revelation about the marriage of the Lamb. There may be times where we don't think much about the church, but Christ thinks about it all the time. He loves his wife and gave himself for her. And when we separate the two, we are driving a wedge within that marriage in some ways, it's too easy to just say, oh, I'm spiritual, not religious. In some ways, it's a cop-out. Oh, let me be connected to the perfect part of the partnership. Since we happen to be the bride, since the church is made up of mere mortals and all of our imperfections, Christ has not given up on his spouse just because she struggles. So please don't force Jesus uh, into some kind of single parent role. The church means everything to him. And therefore, it should mean a whole lot more to us. Now, that brings us to section 20, which was known originally as the Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ. It's often been called the Constitution of the Church. 
The word church appears 40 times in this revelation. It just bursts onto the scene. We haven't seen the word appear very often up to that point. We see it in section 1, the true and living church. But remember, the preface was given after the fact, so it's not there yet. Chronologically, the first time it's mentioned is section 5. Remember when he says that this is the rising up and the coming forth of my church out of the wilderness? Remember the woman of Revelation 12? Restoration emerging out of apostasy? We see church again at the end of section 10. But remember that lesson? That was a little tricky because he refers to two different churches and calls them both mine. There's the, the big umbrella, my church, that we, he calls the church of the Lamb. And then there's the much more specific church of Jesus Christ that he's restoring in order to build up his original church. As long as you're a member of that big church, you're on target. In fact, I was thinking about targets, and, and I hope this helps. I'm a visual learner, and so to be able to see this was helpful for me. For those who are listening to the audio only on the podcast, I apologize. Picture a target with concentric circles leading into the bullseye. And, and this might be a good description of what the church looks like in God's mind. Now, off the target is what the Book of Mormon calls the Great and Abominable Church, also known as the Church of the Devil. Those are the ones completely off the target. Remember, Nephi said there's only two churches out there, so off the target or on the target. You're either gravitating toward God or falling towards the adversary. Remember, Jesus said, if you're not against me, you're for me. If you're not off target, you're on it. You're part of my church. So now we're on the target itself. This is the church of the Lamb. If you're responding to the calls of conscience, if you're leaning into the light of Christ, then you're part of the church of the Lamb. Now, where does that put the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Again, when I taught that lesson in section 10, my goal was to help pull the pendulum into the middle, where we could be balanced in the celestial center of the straight and narrow path. I hope that my, my efforts to correct didn't lead to an overcorrection on anyone else's part. In avoiding tribalism, it was never my intention to descend into religious relativism. There is a part to play for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That, in fact, is an inner circle on the target. We're moving closer to the bullseye. But that's the other irony. We're still not there. Because in, later in the Doctrine and Covenants, this is section 76, which we'll get to in a few months, the Lord keeps talking about what he calls the church of the firstborn. Now do you start to see the, the bullseye come into view? Those are the celestial saints. Not just leaning into the light of Christ, but becoming like him living into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, as Paul says. That's the church of the firstborn. But now if you see the target, what is the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for? To start moving everyone in closer to the bullseye. Turn people around so that they leave the church of the devil and join at least the church of the Lamb. But then within that, to continue to develop faith within them and call them to repentance to invite them to make covenants with God. But not just to join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's still too provincial. It's to ultimately invite them to belong to the Church of the Firstborn. It's meant to develop the best in all of us. Talk about nurturing. It's exactly what's happening. And I want us to see today how the Lord is setting up that structure through what we find in section 20. Now, as important as section 20 is to the history of the church, the revelation actually has an interesting history of its own. 
compared to all the revelations that preceded it, there's a certain synergy behind this section that goes beyond what we've seen before. A combination of divinity and humanity trying to, to put into words what this church is supposed to look like. You see, it comes by revelation, but it's something that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery have been working on for, for almost a year now. You see, back in the summer of 1829, right on the heels of the restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood and the Melchizedek Priesthood, in fact, this is another time when church is mentioned earlier in the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 18, when, when Oliver Cowdery is told, you know the Book of Mormon's true, then rely upon it. Well, that reliance wasn't just to craft his own life. It was to help understand what the Church of Jesus Christ was supposed to look like. The Book of Mormon was supposed to be kind of the original church handbook of instructions. And so Oliver was tasked with the responsibility to, to create a document in some ways, it was like the rough draft of section 20, yeah, Oliver's version of the Articles and Covenants of the Church, and he based it all on the Book of Mormon. Well, with Oliver's help and with God's divine help, Joseph Smith is trying to figure out, well, this woman's coming out of the wilderness. What kind of a home are we supposed to build for her? And revelations start to come. He says you know, about that summer of 1829, in this manner did the Lord continue to give us instructions from time to time. So you get a line upon line kind of idea here concerning the duties which now devolved upon us. Remember, we just received the priesthood. Well, what are we supposed to do with it? Here's the duties. And among many other things of the kind, we obtained of him the following. He's referring to section 20. By the spirit of prophecy and revelation, which not only gave us much information, but also pointed out to us the precise day upon which, according to his will and commandment, we should proceed to organize his church once again here upon the earth. So they're getting both the day that the church should be reestablished, but also the way in which the church should be organized. And just as it came line upon line from time to time from that summer on, it still was added to even after the church was organized. There's a few verses that were added later, for example, because they didn't know all the priesthood offices. And when they learned about them later on, they realized, oh, that would be a perfect fit for section 20, where, where we already learned about deacons and teachers and priests and elders. Well, now that we know about bishops and high counselors and so on, we should include that in the same. So, in some ways, this is a, a living constitution, but it really is an incredible piece of organizational revelation. In the original Doctrine and Covenants, it wasn't section 20, it was section 2, which ought to tell us something about the order of priority for the early saints. We get the preface, which obviously needs to come first, wake up the world, hearken to God's voice, and then boom, number two, a church has been organized, his church, and this is how it runs. Now, when I was in divinity school, we had to study all kinds of aspects of religion. There, there's a whole new vocabulary you have to learn. I talked about this a little bit when we hit hermeneutic and exegesis a couple of weeks ago. But I learned that throughout Christian history, there have been a few intrepid souls who have been, oh, masochistic enough to want to take all of those new vocabulary words and define Christianity based on all of those areas of study and organize it in a systematic way. Their efforts are called systematic theologies. The most famous systematic theology in Christian history is probably Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica, like the sum total of all theology. It's massive, a life's work. But to try to organize and systematize everything you need to know about the Christian religion. Well, like I said, those are massive. And one of the things that I love about section 20, for some it's, too, it's long. 84 verses. If you're a chapter a day kind of a person, well, section 20 is going to take you a while. But compared to Summa Theologica, 
Section 20 is the simplest and most straightforward systematic theology that I've ever seen. And it really does walk us through so many of those areas of study that other systematic theologies contain. I mean, how's this for some interesting divinity school vocabulary words? History is an easy one. What's the history of the church entail? Theology is one we're used to also. Theos is God. Ology is the study of. So big picture theology, there's our study of God. But under that heading, there is theological anthropology, which is the study of human nature through the lens of that religion. There's hamartiology, which is the study of sin. Most people are like, what? There's an ology for sin? Who needs to study it? It comes so naturally. Well, there's Christology, which studies the nature of Christ. Soteriology is the study of salvation. There's pneumatology, which is the study of the spirit. Angelology, yes, that's a real word, is the study of angels. Covenant theology describes this relationship between God and humanity, and specifically what he asks of us, the commandments that we're supposed to keep. There's the study of scriptural hermeneutics, which we talked about earlier. What is the interpretive lens that we take to the word of God? There's sacramental theology, what we call ordinances, other churches call sacraments. And so what, what is the nature of baptism and the Eucharist and uh, confirmation and, and those kinds of things? There's ecclesiology, the study of the ecclesia, also known as the church. So what is a church structure and how is it organized? The, the, the amazing thing about Doctrine and Covenants section 20, I mean, all of those ologies I just listed sound like a bunch of divinity school jargon, but they're all in section 20. In the most encapsulated form, the Lord walks us through the systematic theology he wants for his restored church. And that's what we'll see today. Start in verse 1. The rise of the church of Christ in these last days being 1,830 years since the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the flesh, it being regularly organized and established, agreeable to the laws of our country, by the will and commandment of God, in the fourth month on the sixth day of the month, which is called April. Now the irony of verse 1 is that it has been used by many in the church to do something that it wasn't intended originally to do, and that is to date the birth of Jesus. In context, what's it meant to do? Establish the date of the church. Remember Joseph Smith said that last summer. He told us the date it was supposed to be organized. April 6th, 1830. But because of the way verse 1 is phrased, it's been 1,830 years since the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the flesh. It's like, oh, there's his birth. And it's been exactly 1,830 years since that happened. And it's on April 6th right now. Oh, now we know the birth date of Jesus. April 6th. B.C. 1. An elder Talmadge makes that suggestion in Jesus the Christ, and as a result of that, it's been repeated many times since by Harold B. Lee and Spencer W. Kimball and Gordon B. Hinckley and David A. Bednar. So some, some strong guns pulling for an April 6th birth date for Jesus Christ. But there are other strong guns that don't read verse 1 in that way. And especially based on the historical record, what is described in the New Testament and then what's described in, in secular history as far as the Roman Empire, those place the birth date of Jesus Christ somewhat earlier than 1 BC and don't place it on April 6th either. And people like J. Reuben Clark Jr. and Bruce R. McConkie don't agree with an April 6th birth date for Jesus. And I'm totally okay with it. Again, the reason we say that is because of this verse. But the, the scholars of the Joseph Smith Papers Project have seen that in the original manuscripts, 
verse 1 was not part of the initial revelation. It was a heading written by John Whitmer, the church historian, to the original revelation. So what's he saying here? He's not trying to establish the birth date of Jesus by revelation. He's simply using fancy language to say, hey, today's the day the church is being organized and it's April 6th, 1830. You ever heard people say, well, you know, in the year of our Lord 2021. Well, in the year of our Lord is simply a fancy way, a spiritual religious way of, of saying the date. Now, could Jesus have been born on April 6th? Sure. I mean, it is interesting that the Lord by revelation would say that's the day the church has to be organized. And what day of the week was that? It was a Tuesday. I'd always assumed that, well, of course the church is going to be organized on a Sunday. Everything happens on a Sunday. No, it was organized on a Tuesday. And it wasn't until April 11th of 1830, five days later, that the Church of Christ had its first Sunday services. Oliver Cowdery got to be the main speaker that day. So there is definitely significance to an April 6th date. I'm just saying be careful about making section 20 verse 1 do something that it doesn't seem intended to do originally. In some ways, I'm actually grateful for the confusion, the possible ambiguity. Because what happens when we have a set date? Yes, we focus all our attention on it, but in the process, we kind of take our attention off all of the other days. It's like when people miss their New Year's resolutions and they think, darn it, I can't set any goals until next January 1st. <laughs> Whatever. Our, God's mercies are new every morning, the Book of Lamentations says. So you can set New Year's resolutions anytime you want. It's sad if we only celebrate Jesus Christ on December 25th or April 6th or any other single solitary day of the year. If we are truly born again in Christ, then we should celebrate the birth of Jesus every day of our lives. Now back to the revelation itself. Verse 2. These commandments were given to Joseph Smith Jr., who was called of God and ordained an apostle of Jesus Christ to be the first elder of this church, and to Oliver Cowdery, who was also called of God an apostle of Jesus Christ, to be the second elder of this church and ordained under his hand. There really is a powerful connection between Joseph and Oliver in the early days of the church. Restoration of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood, first and second elders of the church, together hand in hand through the translation of the Book of Mormon. And here they're both referred to as apostles. And as we said last week in section 18, there's a difference between a more generic term apostle, one who is sent to teach, and more of the organizational title as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Neither Joseph nor Oliver were members of that initial Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, but both held apostolic keys received from Peter, James, and John. In verse 4 he says that this all happened according to the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory, both now and forever. Amen. Now with that introduction behind us, we're ready to dig into the systematic theology of the Church of Christ. In fact, I didn't mention that from verse 1. The rise of the Church of Christ in these last days, as far as they knew, that was the name for it. It was Christ's Church. They understood that from the Book of Mormon. It's got to be named after him if it's going to be his church. And so that's what they called it. Now, as years passed, they realized there's a lot of Christian churches out there, so how do we differentiate ourselves from that? And so they kind of swung the pendulum and said, well, let's name the church the Church of the Latter-day Saints. You do see a hint of that in this first verse as well. It's the Church of Christ, but it's in these last days. His followers in the Bible were called saints, so his followers in our day are called saints. And if we're saints in the last days, then I guess we are Latter-day Saints. So this is the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And then, this is now section 115 
1838, the Lord says, you, were, you were, had, it, had it right the first time and you had it right the second time, but you kind of overcorrected. Let's combine the two and call it the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That way the world will know whose church it is and when this church is at work, preparing the earth for the second coming of the Savior. Well, this systematic theology will begin with history from about verse 5 through verse 16. And I love that of all that could be said to this point, there are two focal points of church history, and that is the first vision and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. I've talked about this pull between the head and the heart, and the uh, Enlightenment period and the Romantic period, and that through history, religions, particularly Protestantism, began putting more and more of their eggs into reason's basket until they almost forgot what faith felt like. And a lot of people lost their faith in the Christian church because many Christian churches had lost their sense of a need for faith a long time before. I love the fact that the two almost foundational experiences in early church history are non-empirical. The first vision cannot be proven because Joseph Smith was alone. And the coming forth of the Book of Mormon can't be proven either. That's the point the Lord was making to Martin Harris in section 5. We don't have the golden plates on display somewhere. Yes, we have three witnesses' testimony and eight witnesses' testimony and so on. But really, it's your testimony that's going to make the biggest difference. And considering the non-empirical nature, the non-provable nature of these two foundational events of church history, I look at them as two anchors that are keeping the Church of Jesus Christ from drifting along that cultural current towards pure rationalism. By requiring our faith in those two events, it helps ground our faith in something that we cannot see or touch with the natural eye or hand. And that is essential. Since we're not going to make it through life, whether in religion or in relationships, without developing real faith. So notice the Lord's focus. Verse 5, After it was truly manifested unto this first elder that he had received a remission of his sins. Now, if you can look through those lines and see what Joseph is talking about. Remember in some of the accounts of the first vision, what was driving him into the sacred grove that day was, yes, I want to know which church is true. But why? Because I want to be forgiven of my sins. I need to know which church can make me right with God. And all, of all the takeaways he left the grove with, the one that meant the most to him personally, was not just that, oh, there's been an apostasy and the woman's in the wilderness and wait and, and eventually she'll be brought out again. It was, Joseph, thy sins are forgiven thee. And so behind that language in verse 5, see the first vision. But how does the verse end? After that happened, he was entangled again in the vanities of the world. Joseph admitted that in Joseph Smith history. Remember the three years from 1820 to 1823? This life of the party, young teenage Joseph Smith is falling into jovial company. Couldn't help it with his native cheery temperament. But did some things or associated with people that were beneath the character of a prophet. One who had been called of God. And so, as a 17-year-old, he, he prays that night in September of 1823 to know his state and standing before the Lord. And what happens? The angel Moroni, beginning the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. We go from foundational event number one to foundational event number two. Verse 6 describes that. But after repenting and humbling himself sincerely through faith, God ministered unto him by an holy angel, 
whose countenance was as lightning and whose garments were pure and white above all other whiteness. That angel gave unto Joseph commandments which inspired him. Love that connection in verse 7. Are commandments meant to drag us down and make us feel trapped? Unfortunately, that's often our perspective. What's intended by them is inspiration. A commandment, something that lets me know how I should live in order to become what the Lord wants me to become. That is inspiring. It inspired Joseph. Then in verse 8, And gave him power from on high by the means which were before prepared to translate the Book of Mormon. As the Yerman Thummim hinted at. Additional scripture translated by the gift and power of God. And how does he describe the Book of Mormon in verse 9? Which contains a record of a fallen people. That's important since that describes all of us. We're all fallen people. And that book is meant to help us overcome the effects of the fall. It also contains the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and to the Jews also. And in verse 10, that book was given by inspiration and is confirmed to others by the ministering of angels. There's the three witnesses. And is declared unto the world by them. That's their testimony that was printed at the beginning of every book. And what is all that for? What does the first vision and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon do? Verse 11, it proves to the world that the Holy Scriptures are true and that God does inspire men and call them to his holy work in this age and generation, as well as in generations of old. You get that sense from section 1, verse 1, hearken, I'm speaking like I always have before. Now do you start to see why the Book of Mormon would so often say that these things, the Book of Mormon, are meant to, to validate and confirm those things, meaning the Bible. How does the Bible work? God speaks to his prophets and his prophets write those truths down and spread them to a world that needs to hear them. He's doing the same thing here. He opened the heavens. He spoke to his servant. That servant brought forth additional scripture. It's continuing to happen through the Doctrine and Covenants. The same God who inspired men and called them to his holy work anciently is doing it again in modernity. And he's inviting all to engage in that same saving work. The first vision and the Book of Mormon are proof of that. And according to verse 12, that shows that he, God, is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Based on biblical history, if there is ever a time where there are not prophets upon the earth who are receiving revelation from God, who have been granted his power and authority of priesthood, and who are not producing scripture, then something's wrong. There's been a break in the connection somehow. The world is in a period of apostasy and will need a new dispensation. That's what I love about the word dispensation. The biggest breakthrough for me happened in a bathroom as I was washing my hands and realizing, oh, that's what a soap dispenser does. It dispenses soap. Oh, it's given me a dispensation of soap. And to picture what God is doing anciently and again in this dispensation of the fullness of times. He is dispensing truth on a world that needs to be cleaned up a bit to prepare it for the second coming. He's done it that way in the past. He's doing it again in our day. Now verse 13. Therefore, because of everything I've talked about with the first vision and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, having so great witnesses, evidence that God is at work as he always has been, proving that this is how he does his, accomplishes his work, by them shall the world be judged, even as many as shall hereafter come to a knowledge of this work. 
the opening of the heavens in the first vision and the opening of the earth with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Heaven and earth themselves are calling us to the judgment seat. They are taking the witness stand and bearing witness of a God who has always loved and wanted to communicate with his children. The fact he's doing it again is such a powerful witness to us of that love. And we will be judged by our response to it. Verse 14, those who receive it in faith and work righteousness shall receive a crown of eternal life. There you get faith and works all together. On the other hand, verse 15, those who harden their hearts in unbelief and reject it, it shall turn to their own condemnation. As President Benson used to say, the Book of Mormon isn't on trial. We are. I mean, it's in the courtroom, but it's acting as witness, not as defendant. And you don't have to take my word for it or Joseph's. Verse 16, you can take God's word for it. The Lord God has spoken it. And we, the elders of the church, have heard and bear witness to the words of the glorious majesty on high, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I love how this revelation walks you through a few things and then just punctuates it with this great kind of exclamation point testimony at the end of a section. After verse 4 in the introduction, all glory both now and forever be to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. And at the end of the history section, verse 16, all glory be to the glorious majesty on high. Amen. The history section then gives way to the theology section. But within that theology, we'll see theology proper. What's the nature of God? We'll see hamartiology. What about sin? We'll see Christology and soteriology, the nature of salvation. Some theological anthropology in there. What are human beings like? Now, it really is an amazing systematic theology. Again, next time you get overwhelmed by 84 verses of the Doctrine and Covenants, go pull Summa Theologica off the shelf. Verse 17, by these things we know. I love that transition. By these things. What things? The fact that God opened the heavens and opened the earth, that he's given us truth from above and truth from below. Isn't that how Enoch quotes the Lord? Righteousness will I send down from heaven and truth will I bring from the earth. Now, this is what's happening. We're surrounded, okay? Above, below, it's all coming together to try to, to whip us into shape, to prepare us for the coming of Christ. But by these things, this truth upon the earth again, by these things we know. And what is it that we know? First, that there is a God in heaven who is infinite and eternal from everlasting to everlasting. The same unchangeable God, the framer of heaven and earth all, and all things which are in them. Isn't that the proof that we saw back in verse 11 and 12? That God still does his work, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's Alpha and Omega. We already saw that back in section 19. He's here for the duration. He can be trusted. Remember Joseph Smith in the lectures on faith taught that the first thing we've got to know to exercise faith is that there is a God. Well, I've seen him. I know that he is. The second thing is to know what he's like. And here he's starting to explain some of those divine attributes. Now, theology of God in 17 goes to theology of man in 18. Here's our theological anthropology. He says there that God created man, male and female, after his own image and in his own likeness created he them. Now, there's so much more that he can say and will say later about that. But as far as the essential core truth that you need to understand, as far as your theological anthropology is concerned, 
Those are big words. But ask any primary kid to sing, I am a child of God. And that's the theological anthropology that needs to sink into our souls. When we look into the mirror, do we see his image engraven upon our countenance? So that like Jesus said to the doubters of his day, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but render unto God what belongs to God. The coin bore Caesar's image while we bear the image of God. And he wants us to grow up, to become like him. That's why in verse 19, God gave unto them commandments that they should love and serve him, the only living and true God, and that he should be the only being whom they should worship. There's the first of the Ten Commandments. And really the first commandment ever given. Everything else has to flow out of that one. I'm the only God with whom you have to do. I'm your Father. And establish that relationship, and you will want to love and serve me. Now we go from creation in 18 and 19 to fall in 20. This is our hint at homartiology and the study of sin. He says in verse 20, But by the transgression of these holy laws, man became sensual and devilish and became fallen man. Now that tells us something different from what the rest of the Christian world would believe in their systematic theologies. According to most belief, post-Augustine at least, there's this sense that we are born into sin, that we are inheritors of Adam and Eve's fall, as well as a fallen nature. Well, that's not what Latter-day Saints believe. We were born into a world of sin with a proclivity towards sin ourselves. But we were born in innocence. We'll see that in a later revelation. I love how he says it here. It was by the transgression of these holy laws that we become sensual and devilish and fallen. Often when I've taught the fall, I, I refer to it as the jump instead of the fall. Because the fall seems kind of accidental. But thanks to uh, Eve's courage and Adam's wisdom in following her good example, th this was a decision that they made to partake of the fruit. Yes, to move downward, but also to move forward along salvation's path. They didn't know everything they were getting themselves into. Do we ever? But they knew it was a step in the right direction. And so it was a jump forward and downward. To me, it's after the fact that the fall really happens. Because as I understand sacrifice and atonement, this is all in, in uh, Moses chapter 5, they rejoice over this forward movement in spite of its downward part as well. And they teach it to their children. All is well. But then you get to this verse in Moses 5 verse 12 and 13 where Adam and Eve blessed the name of God. They made all things known unto their sons and their daughters. So far, so good. So good. But then Satan comes among them, and he says, I am also a son of God. He's trying to establish his authority, his street cred. And he commanded them, saying, Believe it not. Don't trust what your parents said. There's no way to come back to the Garden of Eden. You see cherubim and the flaming sword? Uh-uh. Nobody's doing an end around there. So believe it not. And they believed it not. Sad that it was so quick. Yeah, it didn't take much convincing for Cain, I suppose. And they loved Satan more than God, going completely against the commandment we just saw in section 20, to only love and serve God. And then this phrase from Moses 5, And men began from that time forth to be carnal, sensual, and devilish. I mean, yes, Adam and Eve fell, but it, does it ever really seem like they're fallen? No, the rest of their lives, post-Eden, they're doing awesome. 
They landed pretty well after their jump forward and downward. It's the next generation that chose to go against the commandments that mom and dad themselves were living. That's where you really see the fall of humanity. The first generation was a jump. The second generation was a fall. And we, having jumped downward and forward to earth, it's when we transgress God's holy laws, laws to love and to serve him. That's when we become sensual, devilish, and fallen as well. There is so much more hope in our humanity in the Restored Gospels version of theological anthropology than anything you see in Augustinian Christianity. Now that we've seen God and humanity and the fall of man, well, if that's the bad news, what's the good news? We shift from homartiology, the study of sin, to Christology, the study of Christ, and more specifically to soteriology, the study of salvation. Those two ologies really do go hand in hand. It's really hard to separate the atonement from the nature of Christ. But look at verse 21. Wherefore, because of the transgression of God's holy laws, wherefore the Almighty God gave His only begotten Son, as it is written in those scriptures which have been given of Him. And what did He do? Verse 22, 3 and 4, He suffered temptations, but gave no heed unto them. By the way, that should tell us something about how we should overcome temptations too. Just don't pay them any attention. Verse 23, he was crucified, died, and rose again the third day. 24, and ascended into heaven to sit down on the right hand of the Father to reign with almighty power according to the will of the Father. So perfect life, followed by atonement, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, exaltation. Seriously, in like three or four verses, he has just flown you through the Christology and soteriology that you need. How are we saved? We're saved through Jesus Christ. He is the only name given under heaven whereby man can be saved. You want the longer version? Go back and study section 19. But in this incredibly succinct, systematic theology, that's what you need to know about salvation. All of that happened, according to verse 25, that as many as would believe and be baptized in his holy name and endure in faith to the end should be saved. That's what it takes on our part. But notice this expansion in verse 26. Not only those who believed after he came in the meridian of time. So this is different. For so many, it's a matter of, yes, Jesus came and initiated the atonement, began Christianity. And so from that point forward, everyone who exercises faith in his name, now that they finally know it, can be saved. Well, what happens to every righteous soul that preceded him? Historical Christianity has tried to come up with some answers from that, but they have a hard time. The Restoration clarifies that from Adam on down, they all knew about Jesus Christ. The Book of Mormon makes that abundantly clear. And so in 26, it's not only those who believed after he came in the meridian of time, in the flesh, but all those from the beginning, even as many as were before he came, who believed in the words of the holy prophets, who spake as they were inspired by the gift of the Holy Ghost, who truly testified of him in all things, should have eternal life. You see how expansive Christ's atonement is? Infinite and eternal in both directions. 27 expands upon that, moving forward, as well as those who should come after, who should believe in the gifts and callings of God by the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of the Father and of the Son. This is a universal soteriology, uh, an understanding of salvation that applies to all of God's daughters and sons. BC saints, 
AD saints, all saved through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, in addition to the soteriology there, we see a little hint at pneumatology, which is the study of the spirit. Pneuma is, is breath, the wind of God, the spirit of God. And we saw the Holy Ghost mentioned in both verse 26 and 27 in terms of the means whereby God speaks to his holy prophets. He inspired them by the gift of the Holy Ghost. He gives his children gifts and callings by the Holy Ghost. And what's the Holy Ghost's role? To bear record of the Father and of the Son. And then in verse 28, let's identify all members of the Godhead together, which Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one God, infinite and eternal, without end. Amen. Now, in our systematic theology, don't think that verse 28 is teaching Trinitarianism. It is simply defining the three members of the Godhead, as we call it. These are the members of the Trinity. This is not the doctrine of the Trinity. They are one God in terms of their absolute unity in purpose, in power, in attributes, but not in personage. That idea is what comes when you force New Testament Christianity through the whole of Greek philosophy. And what was more clearly understood as the symbolic unity of the members of the Godhead all of a sudden becomes an ontological unity, a oneness of person that is not a biblical concept. Now back to verse 29, while we're still within this uh, soteriological discussion, how does salvation come? That we've described the Lord's part in the earlier verses and now verse 29, we know that all men must repent and believe on the name of Jesus Christ and worship the Father in his name, and endure in faith on his name to the end, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. So it is because of everything Jesus did, atonement, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, all the verses that we saw earlier, but it's also because of some, some things that we do. Not so that we can earn salvation, but so that we can receive the gift that God is giving, so that we, we could quit stiff-arming him. We repent of our sins, that's what's keeping us away. We believe in his name, and worship the Father in His name. We endure in faith in His name. Again, this is the marriage that we were talking about earlier. We are His, and He is ours. And it is by knowing the name that we've taken upon ourselves that we can come home. But again, as we try to balance here, proving contraries and striking balance is always difficult. We move away from that extreme, and it, uh oh, we're starting to end to, uh, to tend towards this one. Let's come back into the middle. So Jesus' role, that was verse 23 and 24. Now our role, that's 29. And then let's get back to Jesus. Let's focus on that, verse 30 and 31. We know that justification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. And we know also that sanctification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true to all those who love and serve God with all their mights, minds, and strength. So again, he's nudging us back into the middle. It's almost like the pendulum swings are getting narrower and narrower as he brings us into the celestial center. This is all that Jesus did. Oh, this is what he's asking us to do. Oh, but, it's all, but it's all, justification and sanctification is still throwing up. Oh, but, but we do need to love and serve him, like he said. You kind of get this sense of trying to get us into the middle, proving these contraries. How much is us? How much is him? Faith and works, grace and obedience. It's a delicate balance that's difficult to maintain. But I do love that he, that he specifies that justification and sanctification both come through the grace of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of similarity between these two verses. It sounds redundant, but the difference is, there is, a, there is a distinction between justification and sanctification. The commonality is that both of those are gifts of Christ. 
with more responsibility on our part to do something to receive the second gift more so than the first. That's why it's associated with sanctification that we are called to love and serve God with all our might, mind, and strength. Now, what's the difference between justification and sanctification? We talked about this a little bit when we compared Aaronic ordinances to Melchizedek ordinances, but maybe this will help sum it up again. To justify is to line something up. On your computer or the word processor, you can go left justification or right justification or center justification. We're just trying to line up the text. And so to line someone up and say, okay, you're good to go. You are no longer considered sinful. I have pulled the weeds from your garden. Now, that doesn't mean that you've planted any flowers yet. You're now out of prison. You're no longer, a, you don't have a debt to society. But that doesn't make you a model citizen, at least not yet. For that, you and I have some growing up to do. Well, at least you do. I'll help you along. You see, if justification is just to align you, sanctification is to sanctify you. It's to make you holy. Justification removes sin, so you've grown from guilt to innocence. Sanctification helps you become like God, so you've grown from innocence to true holiness. The transition that justification is trying to accomplish is going from telestial to terrestrial. You're overcoming your sins of commission. But the transition in sanctification is from terrestrial to celestial. Now you're overcoming your sins of omission. Justification is pulling weeds. Sanctification is planting flowers. Aaronic ordinances specialize in justification. Sin removal, right? Melchizedek ordinances specialize in sanctification, introducing us to the presence of God. So if justification reverses the fall, sanctification, in a way, reverses the condescension. Instead of God coming down to be like us, he's now lifting us up to become like him. A key part of justification is sacrifice, at least sacrificing our sins, while a key part of sanctification is consecration, truly giving our hearts over to God. In justification, we're working on our actions, but in sanctification, God is helping us develop his own attributes. And again, as these two verses describe, it's all through the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can neither be justified nor sanctified on our own. Yes, we are called upon to love and serve God with all we've got, but that is in order to receive the gift, not to claim our rightful payment. He then adds one interesting detail in verse 32. But there is a possibility that man may fall from grace and depart from the living God. That is such an important understanding. Just because he's given us this gift doesn't mean that we decide to keep it. Now that verse, verse 32, stands in the face of about 300 years of Calvinism. And Calvinism is kind of what we, we associate with that sinners in the hands of an angry God from Jonathan Edwards, or this idea of predestination, that God's already decided who's going to be saved and who's going to be damned, and there's nothing you or I can do about it. Now, in our day, Calvinism gets a bad rap and makes God this angry being, when in reality, what Calvinism was trying to do was to protect and preserve the sovereignty of God. You see, Calvin felt that in trying to, to strike a balance between how much does God do and how much do we do, he felt that society was moving too much towards what do we do and what can the church accomplish and can, can it guarantee salvation because we've participated in these ordinances or sacraments as they were called. And so in an effort to correct that, Calvin overcorrected it. And to preserve divine sovereignty over against human agency, 
he basically destroyed human agency. Now over the years, people have tried to reduce Calvinism to an acronym that they call TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. And it helps remember, kind of, again, it's, it's a little bit oversimplified. If any of my more Calvinistic friends were here, they'd probably say, well, there's a little more nuance than that. And granted, but for simplicity's sake, here is what historians and scholars have defined as the, the five petals of the tulip. T stands for total depravity, and that describes us. That man is fallen by nature and there's nothing good about us. That's an important first step because then God is justified in damning everyone. It's not that he's being mean for damning us. That's what we deserve. It's just that he's being shockingly kind for a few select souls who are being saved through no merit of their own. So that's the first underlying one. And we already saw in our theological anthropology that we don't quite believe in that. In fact, we don't believe in it at all. We became fallen man once we transgressed holy laws. We weren't born completely sensual and devilish. But Calvinism says that we are totally depraved. That, the T then leads into the U, which stands for unconditional election. Election meaning salvation. We are elect. We're chosen by God. And it's unconditional. There's nothing we can do to be saved. And there's nothing we can do to be unsaved. It has nothing to do with us. Remember, total depravity. None of us deserve any of it. But God, in his infinite mercy, chose a few people unconditionally and said, yeah, for some reason, in my divine inscrutability, I'm choosing you. I want a few people to be saved. Then L, and this one, I, I shudder to even mention it, stands for limited atonement. That's, that is an oxymoron to me. I prefer infinite and eternal atonement. But a limited atonement? Yeah, it's limited to the few people that were chosen in spite of their, their infinite depravity to be unconditionally elected to salvation. The atonement only applies to them. We've seen in section 20 already that we don't believe in that either. Now, with the L in place, now the I stands for the irresistibility of grace. In other words, God's grace, if he chose to save you, there's no avoiding it. You can't get into heaven against God's will, but you can't get out of it against his will either. His grace is irresistible. We've seen that corrected in this section already. By not exercising faith, by not repenting, by not taking his name upon us, by not loving and serving God with all our heart, mind, and strength, then we are resisting God's grace. And then the petal of the tulip that verse 32 most clearly plucks, P stands for the perseverance of the saints. And by that they mean that if you've been unconditionally elected, if the limited atonement applied to you, if grace came because there was no way for you to resist it, then there's no falling from that grace. Your sainthood, declared by a sovereign God, is permanent. It will persevere. But what does the restored gospel say to that? No, there is a possibility that you can fall from grace. You can depart from the living God. No wonder he says in verse 33 and 34, Therefore, because of that possibility, let the church take heed and pray always, lest they fall into temptation. Don't pay any heed to temptation, but please pay heed to the concern that God raises here, that temptation will lead to a fall whenever you succumb to it. So pray always. Verse 34, he even says, Yea, even let those who are sanctified take heed also. So not only is he denying guarantees for the justified, he's denying guarantees for the sanctified. There's always a possibility of falling from grace. 
Now, this would have ne probably never crossed Joseph Smith's mind. But in the 4th century AD, there was a, a Cappadocian father, a theologian named Gregory of Nyssa. I actually love this guy. He was grappling with this thought of, wait a minute, if salvation is permanent, then what does that do with human agency? Because as long as there's agency, it seems like there's a possibility of using it poorly and falling from grace. But, it, but salvation does seem permanent. So if salvation is permanent, does God just kind of, I don't know, suck the, the agency out of, per, of, of a person? Does the human will just, I don't know, gone and buried? It's almost like God gave it to us for a time, and once we uh, proved to him that we knew what to do with it, he could then say, okay, that was really dangerous. Uh, you passed the test, but let me take it away from you now, now that you've shown you knew what to do with it. But again, what, what does that say about, about our nature? Is it really impossible to make salvation permanent and preserve human agency at the same time? Again, this was the day before Netflix. This is what you did at night. You just thought about theology. I, I miss those days in a way. Well, what was Gregory of Nyssa's solution to the problem? This, this is kind of his, his brainchild, the thing that puts him on the, the theological map. He came up with a, with a belief that he called perpetual progress. That should perk up Latter-day Saint ears. If we can continually move forward, then we have agency preserved. I can keep choosing, but I'm choosing to progress. That There are still decisions to be made, growth to be engendered within us. And by always moving forward, that's the way I never fall back. It's like my little kids when they'd see an escalator. And as the escalator was going down, that's the potential of human agency, they would sprint up. And as long as they were outpacing the speed of the escalator, they could always get to the top. That's the idea behind Nissa's perpetual progress. Perhaps without even realizing it, maybe that's some of the truth behind eternal progression. You can still have your agency. And yes, that means that even the sanctified need to take heed because even they can fall from grace. But as long as you are choosing to move forward, that's what this life was meant to do to help develop within us righteous reflexes so that whenever a choice is placed before us, we choose the right, which keeps us from slipping into the wrong, which will always drag us back down. Pretty amazing systematic theology, isn't it? Well, keep going. In verse 35, and we know that these things are true. See, he's about to sum up the theological part with another glory be to God. But he's bearing his testimony. We all are collectively in this declaration. But then he says a really fascinating thing in verse 35. I love this part. He says, we know these things are true. And according to the revelations of John, neither adding to nor diminishing from the prophecy of his book, the Holy Scriptures, or the revelations of God, which shall come hereafter by the gift and power of the Holy Ghost, the voice of God, or the ministering of angels. Now, that was a long sentence that's easy to get lost in. Let's try to unpack it. You see, at the end of it, he's talking about how revelations will come. He lists three sources, either by the gift and power of the Holy Ghost, or more directly, straight from the voice of God himself, or third, the ministering of angels will teach us those things. Now, Joseph Smith has had experiences with all of that. The voice of God directly in the sacred grove. The ministering of angels in that upstairs bedroom in Palmyra or on the banks of the Susquehanna with the restoration of the priesthood. He's had the gift and power of the Holy Ghost revealing truth to him almost constantly for the past 10 years. In fact, there's a great verse in Moses 5 that we've already turned to earlier when we talked about the fall versus the jump. 
But he says this at the end, and this is how Adam learned the gospel post-fall. Thus the gospel began to be preached from the beginning, being declared by, and then he lists three options. Number one, holy angels sent forth from the presence of God. Number two, by his own voice. And number three, by the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's the same three that are mentioned here in section 20, just in the reversed order. That's how we come to know the things of God. And that's how God has always revealed things. Moses 5 is saying, from the very beginning, that's how he did it. Earlier on in section 20, he's saying, that's how things have come in the past. And now, based on the first vision and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, that's our proof that God still works that way. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have a father who wants to connect with his kids. He wants to speak through his children. And so he calls prophets. And he always has, and he always will. Except in times when a critical mass of humanity falls from grace, rejects the gift, silences the prophets, sends the woman into the wilderness. And God has to wait a while for another generation who is hopefully more willing to hear him. So that's the end of verse 35. But the way he couches that at the beginning of 35 is fascinating. Because who does he call upon? He calls upon John the Revelator. And he invokes a passage from the book of Revelation that if we don't know it, all of our evangelical friends do. And they use it against us all the time. Remember at the very end of the book of Revelation where John says, you're not allowed to add to or take from the prophecies of this book. Now our Christian friends take that and say, see Latter-day Saints, you're in the wrong You've added scripture, and so there shouldn't be a Book of Mormon. There shouldn't be a Doctrine and Covenants. There shouldn't be a Pearl of Great Price. I mean, it's right there. Last page of the New Testament. It's over. Don't add anything. What they don't understand there is that the New Testament had not yet been compiled. And according to some scholars, the book of Revelation wasn't even the last book written anyway. It just seems to fit at the end of the canon of scripture well because it describes the last days. If Genesis begins with creation and Revelation ends with the celestial kingdom, those are pretty good bookends for a book that's supposed to cover all of history. But again, that book, the Bible, didn't exist when John wrote that. So what are we supposed to make of that warning? Well, first of all, John was talking about the book of Revelation. Don't add or take away from this specific text. Or what he may have been meaning by that, since the book of Revelation's purpose is to present the choice between good and evil in as stark a way as possible, don't, don't muddy the waters. Don't add or take away from that. It, it's, it's as simple as which direction are you moving in? Towards God or towards the devil? Towards light or towards darkness? Don't complicate matters. Are you drifting away from the target into the church of the devil? Or are you gravitating toward the bullseye, the church of the firstborn? But to me, going back to section 20, verse 35, the ultimate irony, and honestly, it makes me laugh sometimes, that when an evangelical friend will say, nope, John says you're not supposed to add to, the, to, to his book of scripture. I kind of chuckle and go, oh, I'm aware of that. In fact, we included that warning in one of our additional books of scripture. And that just confuses them to no end. They're like, wait, what? You, it's like you broke a rule and then you, you attach the rule to how, the way you've broken it. It's like you're advertising the fact that you don't care about this warning. No, we're dramatizing the fact that we understand it in a different way. I mean, think about it. If we really thought that we were running up against John's warning, we would probably never want to draw attention to it, especially not in the place where we're breaking John's rule. 
But instead, what's he say here? Hey, these things, these additional things, they're true. And just like John said, we are neither adding to nor diminishing from the prophecy of his book or the Holy Scriptures as a whole or the revelations of God, which will come hereafter. Now, again, this is shocking what he's saying. It's like we're saying to the rest of the world that's kind of freaking out over this, really troubled that we would add Scripture. It's like we're trying to reassure them. Hey, don't, don't, don't lose sleep over this. We weren't adding to the Scriptures when we added to the Scriptures. And nor will we be adding to the Scriptures when we keep adding to the Scriptures from this day on. Now, they'd really look at us confused. Like, what, what are you talking about? Well, what did John mean by don't add to these things? Now, there's two ways to look at the word canon, because there's canon as list and canon as law. What, what constitutes the scriptural canon? Well, here's all the list of books that, that belong here. If it's not on the list, then it's not part of the canon. But what gets it onto the list? In Catholicism especially, they talk about canon law. So here's the law that, that's governing the church. Well, what allows a book to, be, to make it to the list? It shares in the canon law. This is God's will for his children. This is truth. And if it's truth, then it belongs on the list. And ask anyone else that's on the list, and they'll say, oh yeah, I agree with that. Their beliefs fit ours. Their law fits within ours. It's not, there's no contradiction here. So bring it into the canon. As long as it fits canon as law, it belongs in canon as list. What's John worried about? Don't change the canon as law. What's he okay with? Well, you can always add to the canon as list as long as it agrees with the law. And that's kind of the point that verse 35 is making. By adding to the list with the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants, we're not adding to the law that's already there. It's almost like induction into the, the, the scriptural hall of fame. Who gets to vote on new inductees? Well, those that are already there. So it's like you're bringing forth scripture and everyone else, this cloud of witnesses like we've talked about elsewhere, is saying, wait, do I agree with them? Are they teaching the same doctrine that we're teaching? And when they're all agreed, oh yeah, join the group. I remember once I was speaking at an academic conference on, on principles of canonization and trying to explain law versus list and so on and, and how Latter-day Saints fit into this. And this, some professor came up afterwards and was just intrigued by this and was kind of pushing and trying to get some clarification. And I said, well, picture the canon as a box. And when Latter-day Saints add to the box, it changes the canon's density, but it doesn't alter the canon's shape. And he sat there kind of like, wait, wait, wait say it again? There's a difference, again, density, as long as, it, as the, everything fits into the same box and it's not changing the shape, like, wait a minute, this piece of literature, totally, this is like apocryphal things, this one doesn't fit. It's teaching doctrine that the rest of the, the prophetic writers would say, wait, what, where are you coming from? That, that you cannot fit that into our box. But others, when you line it up and go, wow, it's like letter size versus legal size. The legal size ones just don't fit in the same box as the letter size. But as long as this additional scripture isn't changing the shape of the canon, well, pack it in. There's room here. And it all fits together and it adds to the density of canon. Additional witnesses of truth. And so I love verse 35. And I love to see the looks in their eyes when they say, no, 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 it says at the end of Revelation, you can't add. And I just smile and go, oh, I know. And we've included that caution, almost as a disclaimer of sorts, in the additional scripture that we've added. Amazing what God is doing. Same yesterday, today, and forever. 
working as he always has, speaking directly, sending angels to testify, and inviting the Holy Ghost to bear witness of the truth that he's given. Verse 36, I can echo this now personally. The Lord God has spoken it, and honor, power, and glory be rendered to his holy name, both now and ever. Amen. It's almost like a chorus at the end of every verse. We saw it earlier in verse 4, and again in verse 16. Now we're almost at the end of each of these sections. It's just this chorus of glory be to God for what he has taught us. Now the bulk of our doctrine has been established. We've seen history that leads into theology and all these subologies within it. Well, now we're going to shift to what we could call our sacramental theology and our ecclesiology. In other words, we're going to talk about ordinances and we're going to talk about how the church is organized. Is it going to be like Catholicism where there's a pope and cardinals and archbishops and bishops and so on? Is it going to be more diffuse rather than centralized, like Protestantism, where it's a priesthood of all believers? Where do the Latter-day Saints stand in all of this? In fact, to cut to the chase, well, prove the contraries. Combine Catholicism and Protestantism, and what do you get? In some ways, you get Latter-day Saint ecclesiology. This is how the church runs. A beautiful combination of centralized authority and widespread authority as well. That's actually fascinating. But it starts with this in verse 37. I mean, how do we even join the church to begin with? Again, by way of commandment to the church, concerning the manner of baptism. Here's part of our sacramental theology. All those who humble themselves before God and desire to be baptized and come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits and witness before the church that they have truly repented of all their sins and are willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ, having a determination to serve him to the end, and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins, shall be received by baptism into his church. Now I realize that's a mouthful. But kind of reverse the order or put the last line at the beginning. And what's he saying? These are those who shall be received by baptism into his church. These are the prerequisites. And did you catch all that was listed? There's humility and desire. Is our heart in the right place? Speaking of the heart, is it broken? Is your spirit contrite? Has there been real repentance? No wonder it needs to be after the years of accountability, as we saw earlier. Have you witnessed to the church that you've truly repented? I mean, there is an order, faith unto repentance, repentance leading to baptism, baptism preparing us for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Are we willing to take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ? We can't take it, but we can be willing to receive it if he's willing to offer it. We see that same language in the sacrament prayers, that they are willing to take upon themselves the name of Christ. Are we determined to serve him to the end? Since there is that fifth step that didn't quite make the fourth article of faith, endure to the end. We've seen that several times in this revelation already, enduring in faith on his name to the end. If we have to be baptized by immersion, then our membership following that immersion should not be any less deep. Are we all in? We should be. And then that last prerequisite, have we manifest by our works that we have received of the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of our sins. It's almost like, are you living the life of a baptized member even before you get baptized? I'm not saying you're perfect, but are, is that your desire? Are you showing that this is what a, a sanctified life looks like? That's where I'm headed. I see the end from the beginning, and I'm committed to follow that path. 
Now that all sounds beautiful to me. Sign me up. Let me get baptized. But there's an interesting history behind verse 37, specifically behind the last line of it that I just shared. You see, remember what I said before, Oliver Cowdery had been working on what ended up being kind of a rough draft of this revelation from the previous summer. And what was he supposed to base it all on? On the Book of Mormon. And so in Oliver's version of the Articles and, and Covenants of the Church, there was also a, a, a part of it that talked about, this is, these are the prerequisites for baptism. And what did he use as his source? Moroni chapter 6, verses 1, 2, and 3. It's actually an amazing passage where Moroni talks about this is what is required for someone to be received unto baptism. Moroni is trying to do the same thing that verse 37 is doing here or that Oliver Cowdery was doing in his version. But Oliver's really towed the line of what Moroni says. And if you compare the two, DNC 20 verse 37 and Moroni 6, 1 through 3, it's amazing to see the parallels. The Doctrine and Covenant says that they need to come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits. Moroni said, neither did they receive any unto baptism, save they came forth with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. DNC, they witnessed before the church that they have truly repented of all their sins. Moroni, and witnessed unto the church that they truly repented of all their sins. Doctrine and Covenants, they're willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ. Moroni 6, they took upon them the name of Christ. Doctrine and Covenants, having a determination to serve him to the end. Moroni, having a determination to serve him to the end. Identical. And then there's a difference. Doctrine and Covenants says, and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins. Now there's something somewhat similar in Moroni, where he says in verse 1, they brought forth fruit, doesn't that sound like manifest by their works? They brought forth fruit, meat, that they were worthy of it. They're worthy of baptism. So in some ways, the idea sounds very similar. But here's one glaring difference. You see, in Moroni 6, verse 4, it says, After they had been received unto baptism, they were wrought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost. But in the Doctrine and Covenants version, it seems to suggest that they've been manifesting by their works prior to baptism, that they have received of the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins. Now, does that make a difference? Oliver Cowdery certainly thought so. Now, whether he's being specific about that difference or just concerned that there was a difference from the Book of Mormon at all, he, he wrote Joseph an angry letter when he first saw what the text of section 20 verse 37 would be. And in it, I mean, he, he, he rose to the full stature of his second elder status in the church. And he said to elder number one, I command you in the name of God to erase those words. And here was why. That no priestcraft be amongst us. Now Joseph was just as forceful as Oliver was in his reply to him. He asked by what authority he took upon him to command me to alter or erase or add or diminish to or from a revelation or commandment from Almighty God. Well, so there Joseph is concerned like, no, how dare you ask me to change the shape of this scripture? It fits in the box, Oliver, believe me. So Joseph was just as adamant for this text as Oliver was against it. And like I said, I've just tried to wrap my brain around what difference does this difference make? Why, why are the first and second elders of the church coming at loggerheads over this? If Moroni's version is talking about fruits or works showing that we are worthy of baptism, and if the Doctrine and Covenants version is talking about fruits or works showing that we've received the Spirit to remit our sins, 
Is it a difference between proof of repentance versus proof of forgiveness? And Moroni is just asking, please prove to us that you're repenting of your sins. And the Doctrine and Covenants, is it suggesting? No, prove to us that you've actually been forgiven. Now, that, that, that would be a concern. Through a lot of Puritan time period, you had to prove that you were one of the elect. Remember the, the, the five petals of the tulip. They wanted to have a gathered congregation of what they called visible saints. We want it obvious that there are no wolves among the sheep. And so assuming that everyone that's already in the church is part of that visible elect, then to, to enter into the congregation, you kind of had to prove yourself. Imagine a fast and testimony meeting where the bishopric up on the stand is holding judgment cards, you know, and somebody bears their testimony and they, they oh, that was an 8.5, or oh, that was a perfect 10, amazing testimony. I mean, to go through all of that and just, I, I really do think I'm saved and, and that God has chosen me. Again, unconditionally elected. I didn't do anything to deserve it. I'm, I'm totally depraved just as much as you are. But look how awesome I am in spite of my depravity. I'm living in such a way that, you, I mean, you'd think that I'd be one of the chosen ones. Check this out. Now, is that something that Oliver is concerned about? Perhaps. But there's two phrases in section 37 that are really similar, and Oliver was only really concerned about the second. The first one was when it said they witnessed before the church they've truly repented. He's totally fine with that. That's straight out of the Book of Mormon as well. The proof of repentance is awesome. You should come to the baptismal font having had a broken heart and a contrite spirit, preparing yourself. It's like scrubbing the dishes before you actually wash them off with the water. Let's scrub the soul a little bit. Let's repent of our sins so that then the grace of Christ can wash you clean. But it's this idea of this almost second manifestation. It's one thing to witness that you've repented. It's another thing to show by your works that you've been forgiven. Can we really prove that? And does it even happen before baptism? Isn't that what baptism is for? I mean, in some ways, I, I can see where Oliver's coming from, especially if he refers to it as priestcraft. Now, there have been scholars that suggest that his invocation of, of, the, of priestcraft is a challenge to Joseph Smith, saying, whoa, 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 I, I was supposed to stick with the Book of Mormon language alone. That's what section 18 says. It's true, so rely upon it. And that's what I did. I didn't go beyond Moroni 6, 1 through 3 at all, but you did, and that's a no-no. That's priestcraft. That's you adding to Scripture. But again, from Joseph's perspective, no, I, I'm not adding in the way you think I'm adding. But I do wonder, maybe it's not priestcraft on Joseph's part that Oliver's worried about. Maybe it's priestcraft on ours. Because if we read that wrong, and we come away thinking, Oh, well, to be received unto baptism, I've got to show in such a way that I am totally clean, that I have been for forgiven of my sins, that the remission that comes through the power, that, that burning, cleansing fire of the Spirit. Oh, it's already happened. Well, again, part of the, well, the problem with that is, well, then is, is actual confirmation just a formality? And no, it has to be done by the authority of the Melchizedek priesthood. Again, we're even separating priesthoods here. The, the baptism of water will be Aaronic. Baptism of fire will be Melchizedek. There's an obvious order here, an obvious kind of ranking almost. But I do worry about those who think, well, for me to be able to participate in these saving ordinances, I have to act saved in advance. And that can lead to a level of hypocrisy that is an interesting corollary of priestcraft. 
almost as if I'm the priest and I'm using my craft upon myself. I'm trying to show just how clean and pure and forgiven I am. Do we sometimes struggle with that in the church? Wanting to come as if, well, I've heard this said in conferences before, to, to make the church a, uh, a country club for the already saved. When what is it really? It's an emergency room. It, it's, a, it's a triage unit. It's a hospital ward. It's where people are coming with broken hearts and contrite spirits, seeking the justification and sanctification that only come through the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Joseph Smith would agree with this. And perhaps the language that, of section 20, verse 37, that he intended to us to, again, meaning and intention. What's the intention behind this? Notice when he says that we need to manifest by our works that we've received of the Spirit of Christ, that may be different from the gift of the Holy Ghost that will come at confirmation, unto the remission of their sins. Not that we've already achieved it, but it's pointing us unto the remission of our sins. My works have shown me and shown others that I am humble and brokenhearted and contrite. I'm broken and I want to be fixed. That's why I'm coming to be baptized or to partake of the sacrament in the first place. But I also am showing by simply being here and expressing that willingness to take upon myself the name of Christ, that that spirit of Christ is pointing me forward towards the fulfillment of his promise, his promise of forgiveness. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be acting this way if the spirit hadn't shown me preview of coming attractions, better yet, preview of coming redemptions. I have faith that he will forgive me. I've had a portion of that spirit point me unto the remission of my sins. And it's with that faith that I'm coming. Remember how Jacob says this at the beginning of his book, because of faith and great anxiety, there's God, I love the combination. That's a beautiful contrary to prove also. What propels me to do things? Well, my anxiety. But what reassures me that those things will have an effect? My faith. And I wonder if section 20 verse 37 is combining in a powerful way this faith and anxiety in terms of the works and fruits that we are showing. Do I have the fruit of anxiety that I am showing? I'm, I'm humbling myself. I'm repenting of my sins. I need help. But do my works and fruits always also show my faith that I've received the Spirit confirming and reassuring me that forgiveness lies ahead? I just think there's something beautiful about striking this balance and being in this place where I know that I need to repent. That's the first manifestation. And I know that I can repent and be forgiven. That's the second half of this manifestation. I think in that way, Oliver Cowdery would say, oh, I totally agree. Amen. And Joseph Smith would say, good, because that's what I think what it means. We're in agreement. Amen. I'm not trying to be more than I am. I'm not, I'm not aiming for priestcraft by, by inserting this language. And surely I'm trying to help the members avoid a potential hypocritical priestcraft of their own. Please try to strike this balance. Anxiety over your sins, but faith in your ultimate forgiveness. That's actually something I do love from the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther used this phrase where he said, Justus et peccator, which in Latin means just and sinner. It's like, why? Wait, which one are we? 
Are we sinful, in which case we need God's grace? Or are we just, in which case, no, we've already received it. And Luther's great, one of his great contributions to understanding this was, oh, we're both. Speaking of proving contraries, you are saint and sinner all at the same time. Isn't that what we heard in conference a while back from Elder Renlund? What was, what was it, Nelson Mandela's definition of a saint? A sinner who keeps on trying? So what are we? Yeah, saint and sinner. Eustace et peccator. The sinner side gives me the anxiety. The saint side gives me the faith. And I'm constantly trying to balance these to know that I must repent and to know that I can. Carrots and sticks all at the same time like we saw last week in section 18 and 19. Powerful, powerful verse. Now after 37, hopefully it confuses us and then reassures us, 38 becomes much more straightforward as we now go from sacramental theology into ecclesiology. How is the church, specifically the, the offices of the priesthood, how are they organized and what are their responsibilities? Verse 38 introduces the duty of the elders, priests, teachers, and deacons, and members of the Church of Christ. Don't forget that last one. That then includes us all. And up to this point, that's all the offices in the priesthood that they know about. Later, they'll have more revealed to them, and they'll be included along with these ones in a later edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. But up to this point, this is what you need to know as far as elders, priests, teachers, deacons, and all the rest of us members are concerned. He starts with elders. Now at the end of 38, he says an apostle is an elder. Now he's just saying this very rapidly in passing. He's not saying that all elders are apostles, but he is saying that all apostles are elders. Remember, we don't have an official quorum of the Twelve yet until 1835. But since it's not separate priesthoods, yes, those are separate offices within it, but it's all part of the Melchizedek priesthood. Apostle is a calling within the Melchizedek priesthood. Everyone within the Melchizedek priesthood is referred to as an elder. You can become a high priest, you can become an apostle, but you're still an elder. And so we're, to you apostles out there, namely to Joseph and to Oliver, you're under this heading of Melchizedek priesthood holding elders. And what is an elder's responsibility? It goes from the end of 38 all through 45. And combining all their duties, here's the list. Elders baptize, they ordain others to the priesthood, they administer the sacrament, confirm, teach, expound, exhort, baptize, watch over the church, confirm, and lead meetings. Now, baptize was mentioned twice. Confirm was mentioned twice. Is he being redundant there? I don't think so. I think the word confirm makes it most clear. Because in 41, it's confirm those who are baptized into the church by the laying on of hands for the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, according to the scriptures. So there are these two baptisms, water and spirit, or water and fire, take your pick. They're both cleansing and purifying. That's what water and fire do. And that confirmation is by the laying on of hands so that you can receive the Holy Ghost. But compare that to verse 43, where again it talks about confirming, but now it simply says to confirm the church by the laying on of the hands and the giving of the Holy Ghost. Now, wait a minute. I thought we already gave them the Holy Ghost in verse 41. Well, let's put it this way. Did you feel the Spirit come to you as a gift when you were confirmed after your baptism? I hope so. But have you also felt confirmed in your faith and felt a renewal of the Holy Ghost when you have been blessed by priesthood authority subsequently? Not in terms of a priesthood ordinance, but in terms of a priesthood blessing. It's interesting that the Melchizedek priesthood, elders within it, can do both of those. There are saving ordinances, 
confirmation into the church, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying out of hands. And then there are priesthood blessings. It's, it's like the difference between being ordained versus being set apart. There's a lot of overlap between the two, but some significant differences as well. And I'm so grateful that the Melchizedek priesthood has been there for my saving ordinances. But that wasn't my, the end of my association with priesthood power. That every time I've been set apart to a calling, that every time I've asked for a father's blessing, or a blessing of comfort and counsel from a friend, that I am receiving, they're giving me access to the Holy Ghost with all of his gifts and inspiration and power. It's an additional blessing, something meant to not confirm me into the church, but to confirm my faith in the things that I've gained through the church. In fact, if you go back to the 1828 Webster's Dictionary and look up confirm, several definitions. One of them is this, to admit to the full privileges of a Christian by the imposition of hands. Thank you, Noah Webster, for that. That seems to be the first instance of confirmation. The, another definition, however, is this, to fix more firmly, to add strength to, to give new assurance of truth or certainty, to put past doubt. Haven't those blessings come to you through priesthood blessings? Post-priesthood ordinances? Again, that might be the simplest way to distinguish between the two. Priesthood ordinances versus priesthood blessings. Now, something else to draw your attention to within that long list of, of responsibilities. I love the way verse 44 says, they're supposed to take the lead of all meetings. Not just to lead the meeting, but to take the lead of those meetings. There's a sense of initiative there. Don't sit back and wait for somebody else to tell you what to do. You have the Melchizedek priesthood. You're an elder. So if you're looking around wondering, well, why doesn't anybody do anything? Well, the anybody might be you. I'm not saying to usurp someone else's authority if they're already taking the lead of a meeting. But if, I don't know, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Are you just sitting around waiting for someone else to step up? No. Step up. Lead. Take the lead. I remember once in Tennessee being asked by a group of full-time missionaries to come and help train their district on how to help people through doubt and, and work with people of other faiths and so on. And I, I love hanging out with full-time missionaries, so I said, oh, I'd love to. And so I, I remember driving to this church to go to this district meeting. And I should have known this going in, because I was a missionary too. But for some reason, I walked into the room, and it's full of missionaries, and I'm the only quote-unquote adult. I mean, I know technically that, that missionaries are adults too, but I was the only old fogey. Everyone else was in their early 20s or late teens, and it just blew me away. What are you guys all doing here? I mean, who's in charge of this? Who's making you come and organize this meeting and do this? And it just, of course, I knew it, but it blew me away that day. It's a bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-olds that have been called and set apart, given responsibility to take the lead of things. No outside authority or supervision needed. That's amazing. God is asking us to do just that. Now, verse 45 tells us that the elders are to conduct the meetings, the ones they're taking the lead of, as they are led by the Holy Ghost, and also according to the commandments and revelations of God. Now, that's another interesting balance to strike. Because on the one hand, it's kind of scary to just, oh, just be led by the Spirit. It's like what Nephi said. I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things that I should do. And especially if an elder is just taking the lead and starting things, and I'm trying to follow the Spirit, but ah, how exactly does that work? There's a potential for kind of anarchy here. 
distinguish our thoughts from his thoughts and so on. Be led by the Spirit, but also do it according to the commandments and revelations of God. There, there is some structure here. I love the combination of the two. I think sometimes we err on the side of the commandments and revelations of God. This is how church meetings are supposed to run, and we go by the book. And sometimes in the process, that rigidity keeps the spirit at bay. But don't overcorrect. Don't overswing the pendulum. We don't want to completely chuck order in, in our zeal for freedom. But balance the two. As we are leading meetings and conducting them, let the Spirit guide and let the commandments and revelations guide. This is Iron Rod and Leahona all at the same time. One very fixed and firm, the other flexible, spindles moving, words changing. We've got to learn to master both instruments. Now from elders in the Melchizedek priesthood, we go to priests in the Aaronic priesthood. And the priest's duties are explained from verse 46 to 52. Here's the quick list. Preach, teach, expound, exhort, baptize, administer the sacrament, visit members, ordain to Aaronic priesthood offices, and take the lead of meetings when there's no elder present. And other than that, assist the elders in anything that they need. I do love the list of things that we do to help encourage faith in others that was common to both elders and priests. Whichever side of the priesthood divide you're on, Aaronic ordinances or Melchizedek priesthood ordinances, you are moving people closer to God. You're, you're centering them into the bullseye. It's just a matter of, am I pulling them onto the target? Aaronic ordinances, pulling weeds, or pulling them into the center of it? Melchizedek ordinances, introduce them to God. But either instance, you're going to need a whole lot of teaching, exhorting, expounding. That's what I love about teaching myself. Helping people see the light and fix a goal and encourage them and, and empower them to move in that direction. I think it was President Hinckley that said, every leader in the church is a teacher. And so much of what leading consists of is teaching the Word of God. Now for the priests specifically, what form does a lot of that teaching take? Look at verse 51. They visit the house of each member exhorting them to pray vocally and in secret and attend to all family duties. This is where the vertical meets the horizontal, where the spiritual meets the religious, where you're out of the church and into the home where the rubber hits the road, where real lives are being lived. It's one thing to put on your Sunday best, both in terms of clothing and in terms of behavior, and just, oh yeah, we got this all covered. I'm manifesting by my works that I've received the Spirit unto the remission of my sins. You just don't come and visit me at home. No, we need to see how we're really doing with an openness and a vulnerability and a concern and a non-judgmental perspective. Can I really help you? Well, only if I really know you and really know where you're coming from. How are your prayers? Are they vocal? Do other people, your own family members, hear you speak to God in their behalf? How are your family duties? Again, the church is just the scaffolding meant to construct the edifice that God really cares about, which is the eternal family. So what we're learning about our duties in church, are they affecting how we perform our duties at home? And are, help, are, and are we helping one another in all of that? Even priests in the Aaronic Priesthood should be assisting in that. The priest's duty then shifts to the teacher's duty. And this is a list worth reading. 
Verse 53 through 55, the teacher's duty is to watch over the church always, to be with and strengthen them. Again, these horizontal connections, I think that's just a beautiful phrase. Just be with them. Be with them in their good times and bad times. So much of priesthood ability is simply availability. Can you sit down with people who are struggling and help them find hope? Can you strengthen them? And you won't even know where they need to be strengthened unless you're watching over. There is a sense of watchman on the tower. But in people's homes, in their lives, not in some kind of a pushy, kind of nosy sort of a way, but hopefully in a way that we've, the people are reassured enough by our genuine love that they lower their, their boundaries, that they open their doors and open their hearts to their real brokenness. Are you seeing this? Because if you are, then you would want to be with me so that you could strengthen me. And please don't confine this to 14 and 15 year olds, 13 year olds now. At this point in 1830, they had not divided up priesthood or offices into age groups and deacon to teacher to priest to elder and so on. These were different offices for adult men, different responsibilities for each, different positions to play on the team. And by the way, so much of what is being described here doesn't require priesthood authority to do. There is a priesthood duty here. That's the word used in verse 53. The teacher's duty. Or 46, the priest's duty. It's like if no one else is doing it, the priest has got to step up. You've got to take the lead. You need to go be doing these things. But there's a difference between having the duty to do something and simply having the desire. I mean, it'll be near the end of this revelation that he tells us what members are supposed to be doing. But to think about what members should be desiring, do I want to watch over one another? To be a part of their lives? That's what ministering brothers and sisters are supposed to be doing. All of us. Forget my duty. Do I have a desire to strengthen others and to really be with them? I think in many ways the sisters do that so much more naturally because it isn't their duty as described in Scripture. It's their desire as part of their divine nature. That ought to describe all of us, sons and daughters, male and female. As Elder Oaks taught in his very first general conference talk, why do we serve? There's a whole hierarchy of motivation here. And duty's on the list, but it's down a few notches from charity, the pure love of Christ. Our charity should motivate all of us to do these kinds of things that don't require authority per se. But if the desire is missing, if we haven't grown up to that point, well, somebody's got to get this work done because people are desperately in need of it. So, priesthood, take the lead. Take the initiative. It's your duty to act in these ways. Verse 54 grows out of that. If we're watching them, if we're being with them, if we're strengthening them, 50, 54, see that there is no iniquity in the church, neither hardness with each other, neither lying, backbiting, nor evil speaking. Now that's a tall order. I feel bad for any 13-year-old that's being ordained to the office of teacher and looks at that verse going, huh? I'm supposed to make sure there's no iniquity in the church? I mean, can you imagine some poor 13-year-old that's being at the usher on, 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 in sacrament meeting? and see somebody come in, I mean, am I just supposed to find them, to help them find a seat, or am I supposed to stand there, none shall pass? Is there any iniquity in you that you're going to be bringing into our congregation? Yeah, that's, a, that's a tricky one. But if we're motivated by love and not just duty, if we're 
watching over and being with and desiring to strengthen, then if 53 is what we're doing, then isn't 54 what the natural result will be? Maybe C is less of an active verb and more of a passive one. Less of a requirement and more of a result. That if we're doing verse 53 the way the Lord intends, then what will we see as a result? We will see iniquity leaving the church because members will be strengthened to live the gospel. I mean, preparatory ordinances are eliminating sin. I mean, that's a direct way that teachers can be involved in that. But just overall, in general, will we start to see iniquity leave all of us? Will it soften our hearts so there's no hardness between us? Why would I lie or backbite or speak evil of someone when I'm in their homes, seeing what they're going through, when I'm with them and just am moved to want to strengthen them? I would have no interest in saying anything negative about someone else because I'm on their side. I'm trying to lift and I'm trying to help. I'm trying to strengthen. That's going to take a lot of looking on our part. It's going to take a lot of loving on our part. No wonder verse 55 says that we've got to meet together often to see that all the members do their duty. Not just all the teachers and priests and, pri and priesthood holders, that all the members do their duty. Because we've got duties too. And like I said, there's nothing better than a duty that has been sanctified to become a righteous desire. Now, teachers go to deacons. And it's interesting the way deacons are described. Because in verse 57, Teachers are supposed to be assisted always in all their duties in the church by the deacons if occasion requires. That, see, that's something he repeats throughout a lot of this. That, that Okay, here, elders, here's your duties, but priests can help you, well, in, in, in areas that don't require Melchizedek priesthood. Yeah, but they can help you in, with the things that you need. Priests have responsibilities, and teachers can help them. And teachers have responsibilities, and deacons can help them. Again, don't take that too far as far as, well, hey, they need help blessing the sacrament. I'm a deacon. I can help. No. In all of the other things that don't require authority for an ordinance to be performed. If it comes down to visiting and exhorting and teaching and helping, yes, work, work your way down and, and get everybody involved. But teachers can be assisted by deacons. And then 58 and 59... It's more what they can't do rather than what they can. 58, neither teachers nor deacons have authority to baptize, administer the sacrament, or lay on hands. And by administer, they mean bless the sacrament. 59, they are, however, to warn, expound, exhort, and teach, and invite all to come unto Christ. I love that it's the teachers and deacons that have to be told, oh, but don't overstep your bounds. It's like it's, it's early in the priesthood, and they're so rare to go. It's like, I just want to do everything. Okay, and you can do so much, but there are some things that do require actual authority to perform ordinances. Baptism, blessing the sacrament, confirming, laying on of hands. Those are things you cannot yet do. But in the meantime, what, with all this bottled up energy that I'm reining you in from using, what can you do? Oh, go explode all over the ward with your warning, your expounding, your exhorting, your teaching. All of which fits under the broad category of inviting all to come unto Christ. There is no more important duty, and better yet, there is no more noble desire. That's the purpose of all of this. Verse 60 then zooms back out and encompasses all of these priesthood offices. Every elder, priest, teacher, or deacon is to be ordained according to the gifts and callings of God unto him, 
and he is to be ordained by the power of the Holy Ghost, which is in the one who ordains him. Now, I love how that verse suggests that every ordination has a vertical and a horizontal dimension as well. You are ordained according to the gifts and callings of God. There's the vertical. He wants to help you with these callings. It's, I know it's a, a high, a lofty responsibility that I've been given you. You can't do it without my help. But there's also, you're being ordained by someone else that has authority. And there needs to be the power of the Holy Ghost within them. Now, this can be a tricky issue. Because so, sometimes we wonder, well, what if the person performing the priesthood ordinance isn't worthy of the priesthood that he's exercising? What if the priest on the stand isn't worthy to bless the sacrament? What if the elder isn't worthy to give the priesthood blessing? Some have wondered, does the ordinance count? If the hands laid on my head belong to someone who didn't have clean hands and a pure heart? That was actually a question that was asked in early Christianity, about the fourth century. There was a group called the Donatists that were as rigorous as you could get, as strict as possible when it came to worthiness. And they, their belief was, no, the ordinance does not count if the person that's performing it isn't worthy. But there were others within Catholicism at the time, chiefly St. Augustine, who was concerned, well, but what does that do for the person? It's not their fault. If they're at the, the mercy of a practically perfect priesthood holder, then, then what's their chance? It doesn't seem just of God to, to not accept an ordinance that when the person was worthy to receive it, just because the person giving it wasn't worthy to do so. And historically, Catholicism sided with Augustine instead of with the Donatists. They became kind of a splinter group that was really hardcore, but didn't grow. Maybe that's part of the reason. There's this balance we need to strike within each of us between justice and mercy. How just do I need to be with myself? How merciful can I afford to be? And that also applies to other people. There is both divinity and humanity in the work. Is there a tipping point? Where does the center of gravity need to be? I really do like verse 60's description of both sides, that ordination involves the gifts and callings of God. That seems to be independent of any other mere mortal. This vertical connection, the power comes through him. But don't lose sight that there is a horizontal component too. The person performing the ordinance ought to have the power of the Holy Ghost as well. Notice that it was power that was mentioned in verse 60. I've said it before, there's a difference between the authority of the priesthood and the power of the priesthood. The authority comes from ordination. Does that priest have the authority to bless the sacrament? Yes. Does that person have the authority to perform that ordinance or that blessing? Yes. Well, do they have the power of it? I can have a driver's license, there's my authority to drive. But if my car isn't functioning very well, if I haven't kept it in, in good working order, then all the authority in the world doesn't get my car going very fast. Now, God will ratify what is done by priesthood authority. But how much power we have while exercising that authority is based on the righteousness of our lives. Authority comes from ordination. Power comes from worthiness. Now, at the end of the day, we're not Donatists. We can trust in the efficacy of the ordinance that was performed by proper priesthood authority. But especially when it comes to that second type of confirming strengthening, helping people past doubt, fortifying them in their faith, that requires more than authority. It requires power. The power of God unto the convincing of men, as the Lord told Hiram. That requires the Holy Ghost within the one who is teaching and exhorting and expounding. And that is true of anyone who is serving others in God's name. 
That doesn't require ordination. That should tell all of us, male and female alike, something about the power of the Holy Ghost in the person who is performing God's work, in ordinations or otherwise. Now, verse 61, this is still part of our ecclesiology. We just see some, some specific instructions of how things are supposed to run. Verse 61 talks about conferences. They should be held once every three months, so quarterly, or from time to time, as said conferences shall direct or appoint. That's a good combination of the freedom and order dichotomy that we saw earlier also. Follow the Spirit, but do it according to the commandments. Well, do it every three months, or as often as the Spirit directs. There's balance between fixity and flexibility. It's good to have both. 62, what are those conferences for? Well, to do whatever church business is necessary. And what might that business entail? Verse 63, some of that business can be elders receiving licenses from other elders by the vote of the church to which they belong or from the conferences. So this is like proof of your priesthood authority. You have a certificate or some kind of license. For us now, it's all attached to your membership record. And by the vote of the church. So we're starting to see common consent, the sustaining of church officers and so on. Verse 64, any priest or teacher or deacon who's ordained can take a certificate with them and that allows you to perform duties in other areas of the church that they're not familiar with you? I mean, we're going to see shortly how important the gathering is to the church, whether that's in New York or in Ohio or in Missouri or in Illinois. But not everyone can just pick up and move. So there is this sense of if there are going to be churches scattered all over the place, then what happens if one person goes somewhere else? Well, that's all covered in this ecclesiology. 65 and 66 talk more about the need for a, a vote of the church, so that sustaining vote, that ratification of priesthood ordination and ordinances. 65 says it ought to happen every time. 66 provides for times where it can't happen. So again, this fixity and flexibility combination. By the way, 66 also mentions bishops and high counselors and high priests for the first time. So that's one of those verses that had to be inserted after the fact, because they didn't yet know about bishops or high counselors or high priests. It's just a perfectly fitting place to include that. So they did. 67 continues with those same offices that were introduced later. And then 68, the duty for all of us. For we members after we are received by baptism. The elders or priests are to have a sufficient time to expound, that's what we do all the time, all things concerning the church of Christ to their understanding, to new members' understanding previous to their partaking of the sacrament and being confirmed by the laying on of the hands of the elders, so that all things may be done in order. So much of this revelation is focused on that need for order. And also to couple that order with a degree of flexibility and moving by the Spirit. But this ties into the importance of accountability, of understanding, of showing that we have an eye of faith moving forward to the fulfillment of the promises that we're making in these covenants. Sadly, we have a long history in the church that we haven't completely overcome yet of both overzealous missionaries and overzealous missionary leaders who just want more numbers and more notches on the belt. So let's baptize them and confirm them as quickly as we can and then move on to somebody else. Where, what is this verse warning us about? People need to understand the commitments, the covenants that they're making. So especially before we confirm them, we need to take sufficient time to explain to expound everything they need to understand so that their conversion can be a permanent one. Remember what, they're, what they're, is expected of them? A determination to serve God unto the end? Well, the challenges that we face in retention suggest that we need to do a better job of verse 68. That's part of the missionary discussions. 
It's, that doesn't suggest that we have to squeeze it all in between baptism and confirmation. That would be a lot. In our day, the vast majority of what is done there is done even before baptism itself. That's one of the reasons with each of my five children, the two of us, one-on-one, -on -one, would read the entire Book of Mormon before they turned eight. So that when they were baptized and subsequently confirmed, they would have an understanding of what they were committing to. I think we can do a better job establishing this kind of order and helping people understand. Verse 69, the members shall manifest before the church and also before the elders by a godly walk and conversation that they're worthy of it, worthy of the covenants they're making, worthy of the blessings that, are, that pertain to it, that there may be works and faith agreeable to the holy scriptures, walking in holiness before the Lord. That's part of our duty. And like I said earlier, hopefully it's part of our desire. Are we seeking a godly walk and conversation? And by the way, conversation in the 1830s meant a whole lot more than just the way you talk. Your conversation was more your, your whole behavior, your comportment before other people. Do you balance both works and faith? Do you walk in holiness before the Lord? And not just us, are we raising our children to do likewise? Verse 70, every member of the church of Christ having children is to bring them unto the elders before the church who are to lay their hands upon them in the name of Jesus Christ and bless them in his name. So verse 70 is for baby blessings. But I love the fact that the name of Christ is mentioned twice there. So often the big focus of a baby blessing is, oh, what's the name going to be? And this, this new father just trying to keep the baby quiet enough that, that the people will hear this blessing that they're trying to, to give. And the name that they shall be known by on the records of the church will be, and everyone's waiting to hear. But I love the fact that in verse 70, that's not the most important name that people should be listening for. Far more important than the given name of this baby is the received name of Jesus Christ. Remember section 18. If we don't know the name by which we are called at the last day, will we know to get up and follow Jesus into the celestial kingdom? With each of our five children, my wife and I spent a lot of time before the baby was born, just wrestling over what name would belong to them. Well, far more important than any of that is the name of him whom they belong to. Are we raising Christians? Now, 71 clarifies that we're blessing babies, but we're not baptizing them. No one can be received into the church of Christ unless he has arrived unto the years of accountability before God and is capable of repentance. That will be clarified later at age eight, but we've seen it now for the second time. Accountability is key. And then the Lord clarifies some of the sacramental theology. We saw the start of that back in 37 about baptism, but now we're going to get more specific of how do you perform one. In 72, it's administered in the following manner unto all those who repent. So again, repentance prepares us for baptism. Then 73, the person who is called of God and has authority from Jesus Christ. So that's key. You have to have authority to, to perform this. Joseph and Oliver learned that very clearly when they read it in the Book of Mormon and then went out to the Susquehanna to pray about it. John the Baptist came to explain. But then what do they do? The person who has that authority shall go down into the water with the person who has presented himself or herself for baptism and shall say, calling him or her by name, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I love the fact that it is in the name of each member of the Godhead 
when a Catholic friend of mine at Divinity School asked about LDS baptisms, and I, and I quoted that, said, this is what we say. They were like, whoa, you guys are Trinitarian? I'm like, no, no, no. We, believe, we don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity like you guys do, but we do believe in all three members of the Trinity. We call them the Godhead. And I was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. It's a key element. But I also love this idea of going down with the person to be baptized. We're going to see immersion in verse 74. Then shall he immerse him or her in the water and come forth again out of the water. That would be really hard to do if you weren't in the water with them. But this idea of joining them in the process, I think, is a beautiful oh, visual aid of what's happening here. Remember, it's the determination to serve him to the end. Back in 68, we need to help expound everything that they'll need so that they understand the covenants that they're making. Is there a sense of going down into the water with them? Coming out of the water with them? Taking the journey along Christ's covenant path with them? Even the word having been commissioned. I wanted to understand that word better, so I looked up its etymology. And commission comes from comitere in Latin which means to unite or connect or combine. But the roots of that, com, is with and together. And mitere is to release or let go or send or throw. That's where mission, you're being sent forth, the same root as missile or missive, things that you're sending. But this idea of sending on a mission, but commission, you're sending them, but you're with them. All along the way, that's the part of this, this ordination to authority. You have my power, my authority. I'm sending you to do my work, but in a way, I'm going with you. It's like power of attorney, okay? It's my authority whereby these things are being done. It's my name that you're giving them. And it's under my name that, you're that you have the authority to perform it at all. But I, I just, the, the mental image of someone going down with them into the water and then being commissioned by Christ, sent with him to perform this, and then to come up again out of the water, and then walk the path together. I love how Paul described baptism, that we are being buried with Christ, so that we can rise with him in newness of life. He's with us going down. That's his condescension. He's with us coming back up. That's his ascension, that he's trying to bring us all with him. Again, do we see the collective, the horizontal nature of the church? I need all the help that I can get. I need people that are willing to go down and come up with me, to enter my home, to watch over me and be with me and strengthen me, to nurture my faith, to help me grow up together in God. I am so grateful to be surrounded by people that are commissioned, that have been sent by Jesus, but are bringing Jesus with them to help me raise my children, to help me strengthen my marriage, to help strengthen me. I don't know of a more supportive community on earth than faithful covenant-keeping, duty, sanctified by desire, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I love the big picture, all-encompassing Church of the Lamb and everyone who's a part of it. It's beautiful. I'm so grateful for all the good they do. But when it comes to a sense of community, I've never seen anything like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, if 72 to 74 describe baptism, then 75 to 79 describes sacrament. Still part of our sacramental theology. 
It's fitting that baptism would be followed by sacrament since sacrament renews our covenants at baptism. And I'm not going to repeat the sacrament prayers here from verse 77 and 79. I taught at length on the sacrament prayers last year in Moroni chapter 4 and 5. So if you want to go back and ponder every word and phrase of the sacrament prayers and how important they each are, then go back and rewatch that video of Moroni 1 through 6. I wish every priest in the church would watch it just to slow down a little as they're repeating these incredible words. But I do want to call your attention to how he sets this up in verse 75. He says, It is expedient that the church meet together often to partake of bread and wine in the remembrance of the Lord Jesus. And the elder or priest shall administer it, and after this manner shall he administer it. He shall kneel with the church and call upon the Father in solemn prayer, saying, and then he gives us the prayers. But you notice all he said to help us prepare ourselves for that moment, whether we're the ones uttering the prayers or the ones hearing them. In 75 he says, it is expedient. It needs to happen. In fact, the word expedient suggests even this, this urgency, this, this rush to it, hurry, like we're trying to expedite something, get it, get it there faster. It's expedient. I've been baptized. I've made covenants. I want to keep them, but I fall. Even the sanctified can fall from grace, right? And so I just need help. So hurry, rush to the sacrament table. I want to renew those covenants as often as I can. In fact, often was mentioned in verse 75 as well. No wonder we need to meet together so frequently to truly remember Jesus Christ. I so quickly forget. I love that phrase in the sacrament hymn. Help me not forget, O Savior. Thou didst bleed and die for me. Part of being merely mortal is that forgetfulness that comes so naturally, especially to the natural man. Remember him. Partake of it often. And I do love where it says that the priest shall kneel with the church. Now, we don't do that literally. I've been to other churches that do have a little kind of kneeling rail that they'll fold down when it's time for the whole congregation to kneel. Personally, I think that's a beautiful thing. But spiritually, symbolically, reverently, do we in the congregation bow the knees of our spirit and reverently approach the throne of grace? Are we all doing this together? If the person baptizing is willing to come down with me to perform the baptism, am I, spiritually speaking, willing to come down with the priests who are kneeling before the altar? Am I on my knees before it as well? And again, for those who are actually offering the prayer, do you realize that you are calling upon the Father, as it says at the end of verse 76? I, I'll admit, I was guilty of this when I was 16 also. I was so nervous about not messing up the words. I didn't want to have to look over to the bishop and him look at me and just, just give me that forlorn shake of the head. I didn't want to have to say it over again. And so I, I was just, it was kind of sprint, sprint to the finish line. I just, I made it. It's done, it's over, and I didn't mess up. But too much of that reeks of performance instead of prayer. If we spent more time pondering the end of 76 instead of rushing through 77 or 79, would we realize that we are kneeling with the church and that collectively, I just happen to be their voice. We're all kneeling here together. And do they understand, or do I understand, that I'm not speaking to them? I'm speaking for them? I'm not performing for my ward and not wanting to mess up and get embarrassed. I am calling upon God the Father. 
He's my audience here, an audience of one. And my prayers are solemn, not rushed. I understand what I'm trying to do and who I'm speaking to. That can make such a huge difference for everyone. He then ends this constitution of sorts with verse 80 through 84. Verse 80 speaks of members of the church who are in transgression, who have been overtaken in a fault. Deal with them as the, spirit, as the scriptures direct, it says. I love how that's phrased. They were overtaken in a fault. Not that they were looking for ways to go and be sinful. No, they were running away from the adversary as best they could. They did have a determination to serve God to the end, after all. But they were overtaken in a fault. They got weary for some reason and stopped running so fast. They tripped up and the fault overtook them. There's still hope. We can help. We need to deal with them as the scriptures direct. Remember, if they're using the Book of Mormon as their church handbook of instructions, then I would suggest that the two places you need to study, if you ever want to understand how church discipline is supposed to work, then study Mosiah 26 and 3 Nephi 18. You can go back and watch both of those videos. At length, I try to make sense of this balance between protecting the sanctity of the sacraments on the one hand, but also recognizing the worth of a soul on the other. In some ways, it's what we talked about last week in section 18 and 19, and balancing this, trying to prove the contraries between justice and mercy. That's how we help people who are overtaken in a fault. We neither pick them up and rush them across the finish line as if nothing happened, nor do we sit and stare at them and kick them while they're down. We take their sin seriously, but we take their soul seriously as well. That's how the scriptures direct. So, Mosiah 26, 3 Nephi 18. Powerful places to study the balance between those two extremes. Now, we could end there. But in the last few verses, there is this reality of, well, what do, what do we do when people move? We can't all be gathered in the cabin of Peter Whitmer Sr. forever. The church is going to grow after all. So, what do we do? In 81, we have conferences. We talked about that earlier, for a year. That's why we have state conferences and general conferences to help us understand what we should be doing. And that's the idea of verse 81. Send a teacher to these conferences. Make sure someone is getting the word from central command. So then you can go back and make sure the water gets to the end of the row. Now, that's easy for us to do with communication and transportation, what it is. But in those days, it was just, again, important. Make sure that, that everyone, we're a unified body of saints. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Come to the conferences to understand that. Verse 82, as you're traveling around, as the church is spreading, as you're coming together in conferences, we need to have records of who have made these covenants. Who should we be watching over and strengthening and being with? So in 82, when you go to those conferences, bring a list of the names of the members who have united since last time. And if we're keeping track of who has joined the church in 82, then in 83, we should also keep track of those who have left the church. We see more and more of that happening in our day, where people are choosing to disassociate with the church. That's what I was talking about before. I'm spiritual, not religious. And as hard as that is on us emotionally and spiritually, because we care about them, they're our family, they're our friends, they're our ward members, it is important to realize that from the very beginning, it was understood that people would come and people would go. This is a real war with real casualties, as Elder Maxwell has said. This is a tug of war between the only two churches that exist. And so recognize the battle and take it seriously. Finally, in verse 84, if you move, 
It's not just the elders that can have a, a license to show that they have authority, but it's you members that can have some kind of a certificate certifying that you are regular members, that you're in good standing. Have it signed by priesthood authority. For us, that's our membership record. For it's our temple recommend. And to me, there's just something, I don't know, so comforting to step into some far-flung congregation and feel at home. Surrounded by fellow saints, none of whom I know, partaking of the sacrament in similar ways to what I'm used to back at home. In fact, we're singing the same hymns and studying the same curriculum. It really is a well-oiled machine. One of the most organized of all organized religion. Now this is the constitution of the church. The articles and covenants of the church of Christ are systematic theology. It lays out what was going to begin happening there on April 6th, 1830. But I love that it's followed by section 21, which was actually given on that date. Section 20 leads up to it and points to it. But 21 was given by revelation at that first initial meeting of the church. It's a short revelation, only 12 verses, but it is powerful. And what it is establishing as all these saints are now gathered together. This is April 6, 1830. The church, some of whom have already been baptized, many of whom would be baptized that day, have packed into this little log cabin, the home of Peter Whitmer Sr. About 60 people packed into this, but probably standing room only. They just wanted to be there. And on that day, the church is officially organized according to the, the rules of the state. That was in that, in that John Whitmer introduction in chapter 20, verse 1. Six people that are signing their name to it to officially incorporate the Church of Christ there in New York. The sacrament is administered. Baptisms are performed. Confirmations take place. Men are, are ordained to the priesthood. And amidst all of those amazing things that are happening among these 60 saints, the heavens open and God reveals this revelation to the prophet Joseph that helps that gathering of saints understand the leadership of the church, namely Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, first and second elder, as they are being presented to the saints for their sustaining vote. It begins in verse 1 by listing Joseph's titles. Behold, there shall be a record kept among you, and in it thou shalt be called five titles, a seer, a translator, a prophet, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and an elder of the church. Now, each of those titles is powerful. We sustain members of the First Presidency in the Comer of the Twelve as prophets, seers, and revelators, all of whom are apostles ordained to that office within the Melchizedek priesthood that begins when they become elders of the church. So we could say of the 15 men who lead the church now that they have the same five titles, prophet, seer, revelator, apostle, and elder. Now, you might have noticed one difference. Here in section 21, verse 1, it doesn't say revelator, it says translator. And yes, that seems to be a gift that was unique to Joseph. Oliver couldn't quite live into that gift as, as hoped. But I do think that tells us something about what translation consists of. That translation is as revelatory an experience as you can imagine. That it wasn't scholarly translation in terms of books and manuscripts and lexicons and dictionaries that it was opening the heavens and having truth revealed to you. In some ways, what you're translating is divine language into human language. And isn't that what revelation is? In fact, think about if, if you wanted to pair these up. A seer is one who sees, and a prophet is one who speaks. 
We sometimes talk about prophecy being foretelling, and it is, but it's also, more importantly, forthtelling. To give that prophetic witness, to declare, to forthtell the things that God would have His people understand. But to even know what to say, you have to gain God's perspective on things. So the seeing is the vertical, God speaking to His prophet. The, the prophecy is more of the horizontal, the prophet speaking to the people. And in some ways, if you put revelation, or in this case, translation between the two, doesn't that combine them? Because if I'm translating, then I'm looking up to the first party and looking out to the second. I can speak both of their languages. I'm connecting the two. Revelation or translation seems to connect and combine the seership on the one hand and the prophethood on the other. And I think we could say a similar thing about apostle and elder. Because an elder seems to be more here at home, helping the saints, taking the lead of meetings. And an apostle is one who is sent to build the kingdom and bear witness of the name of Christ in all the world. I love the combination of all of these titles, connecting heaven and earth, connecting home and abroad. Joseph will be doing all of those things. And notice how verse 1 ends and how 2 continues. All of these titles would come through the will of God the Father and the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ being inspired of the Holy Ghost to lay the foundation of the church and to build it up unto the most holy faith. Do you see all three members of the Godhead there? We are led by men called of God through His will who are empowered and infused with the grace of Christ to be able to perform God's will, and they are inspired by the Holy Ghost and the end of two, to lay the foundation of the church and to build up the church. To what end? So that it might become the most holy faith. We've got a lot of growing up to do. Now verse 3, this church was organized and established in the year of your Lord, 1830 in the fourth month and on the sixth day of the month, which is called April. Very similar to what we saw back in section 20, verse 1, but less confusing as to the, this is not meant to establish the birth date of Jesus. It's simply meant to establish the organization date of Christ's church. Verse 4, wherefore, meaning the church, he's now speaking to all of us, thou shalt give heed unto all his words and commandments, which he shall give unto you, as he receiveth them, walking in all holiness before me. Do we receive from the prophet in the same way that he receives from the Lord? Is there that same sense of, of faith and openness and worthiness and maybe faith and anxiety if we combine the two again? God, we need your direction. I know that President Nelson feels that. I have to speak for God, in which case, if I'm going to reveal and prophesy, I have to see. I have to know both languages. Well, do we feel that same divine pressure to walk in all holiness before God, to give heed to the prophet as the prophet gives heed to God? I mean, the way he says it in verse 5, his word ye shall receive as if from mine own mouth in all patience and faith. He really is trying to draw this parallel. We saw that at the end of section 1. Whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. So here, if you're receiving it from him, the prophet, then you're receiving it from me as if I were the one speaking directly. Remember we saw that in section 20. There are three ways that God communicates, whether it is by the Spirit 
whether it is directly from his voice, whether it's by the ministering of angels. Well, think about that first one, as God communicates through the Spirit to his prophet. Do we receive that same communication through the same Spirit? If we do, then we know that they're speaking from God. It is the same voice. Now, notice the end of five, though. It must be done in all patience and faith. That is such an important combination as well. Now remember, if they are seers, and they are seeing further than we are, they are watchmen on the tower, as Ezekiel describes them, which means they can see afar off. They can see things that we can't see, at least not yet. You see, our patience convinces us to wait, because I can't see anything yet. But it also convinces us to be up and doing in the meantime, because I have faith that someday I will see what they see. I just can't wait until then to get up and going, or it'll be too late. That's why their elevation gives them that perspective that I lack. There will be times that what they say might not make sense to us. That there may be times that prophets contradict your political views or your social views. That should actually come as a great reassurance that they're speaking for God to us rather than speaking for us back to ourselves. They are the thermostat adjusting the temperature, not the thermometer, just reflecting what we already feel. There will be times that their words require our patience and our faith. But as we saw repeatedly through the Book of Mormon, God vindicates his prophets. So be patient. Realize that you haven't yet seen what the prophet sees. But be faithful. Act as if you've already seen it because they have. If we'll do that, verse 6, by doing these things, here's the promise. First, the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Second, the Lord God will disperse the powers of darkness from before us. And third, cause the heavens to shake for our good and for his name's glory. No wonder the heavens are shaking. They're opening up these heavy doors and truth is coming forth. No wonder the powers of darkness are dispersed because light is shining down. No wonder the powers of hell cannot prevail against us because the powers of heaven are at work. I love that phrase. The gates of hell shall not prevail against you. We've already seen several assurances in the Doctrine and Covenants that hell will not prevail against God, that his works never fail. We'll see it reaffirmed repeatedly through the rest of the Doctrine and Covenants. Hell will not beat heaven here. This is the final dispensation. It doesn't end in collapse. It ends in consummation. It ends with the coming of Jesus Christ, the millennial reign. But how are we going to get there? By building upon this rock. You see, that's the initial time we know of that language. The gates of hell shall not prevail against thee. Very famous passage in Matthew 16. Remember in that scene where Jesus asks, well, what does everybody think of me? And they say, well, some say you're this and some say you're that. And he says, well, what about you? You apostles, whom do you say that I am? And Peter, the chief apostle, rises to the occasion and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's when Jesus congratulates and confirms Peter in that testimony. When he has a play upon his nickname, his Simon is his real name, Peter, Petros, nickname, meaning the rock. And so he says to his rock that I will build my church upon this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
Now, there's been all kinds of argument over what Jesus meant by the rock. In fact, it's one, it's one of the verses that I call a hinge point because so many different churches look at it and turn in a certain direction because of their interpretation. Catholicism looks at that verse and says, oh, well, duh, the rock is Peter. Or, writ large, the rock is the papacy. They believe Peter was the first pope and that Jesus is saying that I'm going to build my church upon the rock of papal authority. Hence the play on Peter's name. Now, Protestants look at that verse and say, oh, not so fast, Catholicism. What had Peter just done? He had just declared his faith. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So it's our declaration of our faith in Christ that is the rock upon which the church will be built. And that's Protestantism for you. It's all about declaring your faith in the name of Christ. And then where do Latter-day Saints come in? We actually have a third option. Because when Jesus says to Peter after that, you know, Peter, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee, but my Father which art in heaven. Ah, that's the rock upon which the church will be built. The rock of revelation. It's not just you making this up because this is your opinion of matters. It hasn't been flesh and blood that revealed it to you. This is not a straw poll to see the popular opinion. It's been revealed to you from my Father in heaven. And it's that rock that the church will be built upon. Now, who's right? The Catholics, the Protestants, or the Latter-day Saints? Now, don't answer that too quickly or too pridefully. Because I would suggest that it's all of the above. In fact, that it's all of them plus one. Because the scriptures also speak of Jesus Christ as being the rock. Or that the church was built upon a foundation of prophets and apostles. But Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner stone. What's the rock upon which the church is built? The most all-encompassing answer is simply Jesus. But does it require priesthood authority to perform saving ordinances? Yes. So Catholicism, I respect your opinion. And is it our, our testimony of faith in Christ, our declaration of that, that is you know, equally key in the church? Yes. Thank you, Protestantism, for that reminder. But does that come by revelation? Of course it does. So thank you, Latter-day Saints. I think that the full description of what it takes to build upon a rock that the gates of hell themselves cannot prevail against would be this, that the rock of priesthood, apostles and prophets, are directed by the rock of Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, that he directs them through the rock of revelation by the power of the Holy Ghost, and that we gain testimonies and declare those testimonies through the rock of proclaiming our faith in Jesus Christ. It is those foundation stones upon which Christ has built his church. Now, accepting Joseph Smith as prophet, seer, translator, apostle, and elder, he's just a mere mortal. I recognize his humanity. I mean, these are a lot of friends and family members. The Smiths and the Whitmers and the Knights, people who knew Joseph pretty well, well enough to wonder, Really? This might take more patience and faith than I realized. It's a bunch of new acquaintances there in the Fayette area that have been hearing stories and, and coming with interest and meeting Joseph Smith. But can we sustain a fellow human being, especially one that hasn't even turned 25 yet? Do we really sustain him as prophet, seer, translator, elder, apostle? Well, notice how God backs up his servant in verse 7 and 8. For thus saith the Lord God, Him, meaning Joseph, have I inspired 
I'm behind it. Look to me ultimately. But it's his mouth that the words will be coming from. Him have I inspired to move the cause of Zion in mighty power for good. You remember in those earlier revelations to Oliver Cowdery, to Hiram Smith, to Joseph Knight Sr., they were all told to seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. Well, we're picking up speed. We're rushing forward. And so what is Joseph being asked to do? To move the cause of Zion. It's been brought forth. It's being established. Now it needs to be moved forward. And move forward in mighty power. Power for good. If we were to live up to our potential as a church, there's not a person on earth who lives or ever has lived that we can't help for good. And that is true both spiritually and temporally. If we are perfecting saints and proclaiming the gospel and redeeming the dead and caring for the poor and the needy, do you understand the difference we could make as we pursue the cause of Zion? One heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness, no poor among us. There's the cause of Zion. That's how the Lord defines it. And if that cause motivates us to build that level of unity, to reach that level of righteousness, to lift the world right along with us, that is mighty power for good. And Joseph Smith was inspired, like none other, to move that cause forward. But it wasn't just a pipe dream for him. Keep going in 7 and go into 8. His diligence I know, his prayers I have heard, yea, his weeping for Zion I have seen, and I will cause that he shall mourn for her no longer. For his days of rejoicing are come, unto the remission of his sins and the manifestations of my blessings upon his works. Those two verses must have been such a reassurance to the saints assembled and to the prophet. God knows how hard I'm trying. He knows how sincerely I'm praying. He knows how brokenheartedly I am weeping. His whole heart and soul is in this. Heart, might, mind, and strength, he's given it all. And the Lord knows it. Even the mortal observers that surround him know it as well. I wonder, do we have any idea of just how much President Nelson and the other members of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, anyone who is sustained as prophet, seer, revelator, translator, apostle, elder, any of these, how diligent they are, at the depth of their prayers, or the number of their tears, and do they mourn for us? Or do they rejoice over us? What emotion do our actions bring to the leadership of the church? More importantly, what emotions do our actions bring to the head of the church, who is Christ? Now, I, I do want to pause here and just ponder, what is Joseph weeping over? What is he praying about? Now, I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the people that he's trying to serve and to gather and to empower. Can they get up to speed? Will they understand their duties? Will it turn into desire? There's so much riding on them moving forward the cause of Zion. But I also wonder how self-reflective Joseph is being as he realizes the burden that is being placed upon his shoulders. If you've ever listened to an apostle give their first talk in conference after being called to the Quorum of the Twelve, I did that once and I just, I isolated them all. I found all the 15 prophets and seers and revelators that were serving at the time. 
and I went back and read all of their first talks, just one after the other, just to kind of get a sense of what is it like to be called as an apostle and what are their feelings, are there commonalities between what they say? And one of the biggest shared emotions is their own sense of inadequacy. It was Elder Maxwell who once said that a call to the apostleship is a call to perpetual inadequacy. It's like we'll never live up to the responsibility God has given us. We'll never be good enough to truly bear his name in that way. I mean, that, talk about daunting. It's like, great, I have a calling that I'll never feel good about. Uh, but if, in certain terms, of, they'll never feel good about their own ability to fill it. It's all-encompassing. Is there any more heart, might, mind, and strength I can give? Any more diligent I can be? Any more tears I can shed? Any more prayers I can offer? No wonder they feel this way. But that's what makes me think about the end of verse 8. Because the end does focus on Joseph's remission of sins, as well as the manifestation of God's blessings upon his works. I wonder if Joseph is feeling there his own crushing sense of inadequacy, or unworthiness. This was a sensitive 14-year-old that went out into the woods, not just to see what church should I join, but is there hope for me? Can I be forgiven? This is a sensitive 17-year-old that is wrestling with heaven that night in September, wondering about his state and standing. This is a sensitive 24-year-old who perhaps his weeping for Zion included some tears over his own mortal weakness. How can I possibly perform this work? Who am I? Not a self-questioning kind of a, who do I think I am? But rather a self-reflexive, who does God think I am? How could he choose me? I am slow of speech and slow tongue. There's Moses. I'm just a lad and all the people hate me. That's Enoch. God, am I worthy to perform thy work? That's Joseph Smith. And will that work be good enough? Now, one of the Lord reassures him both the personal as well as the productive. You, Joseph, your sins are forgiven you. And as far as the things that you are trying to do, the work you're trying to accomplish, I will manifest my blessings upon it. Remember, it's you that's speaking, but me that's inspiring. It's your words, but they're coming originally from my mouth. It's your works but it's my blessings. So trust in that. He then says in verse 9 that this isn't just for Joseph's work, it's for all of yours. For behold, I will bless all those who labor in my vineyard. You're all being called to it. It's your duty. Let it be your desire. I'll bless you with a mighty blessing, and they shall believe on his words, which are given him through me by the Comforter which manifesteth that Jesus was crucified by sinful men for the sins of the world, yea, for the remission of sins unto the contrite heart. I love what the Lord is doing in that verse. I'll bless everyone who just labors. Roll up your sleeve and get at it. What's one of those blessings? It's like he's turning to the prophet. You'll believe in his words. One of the greatest ways to get a testimony of this work is to engage in the work that you're seeking a testimony of. Remember from 1 Nephi when Laman and Lemuel are complaining about Nephi's ship? Guess what? They're not helping him build it. And the moment they start helping him build the ship, they stop complaining or expressing doubt about it. That is an important principle to understand. Most people that I know who are complaining about the church aren't serving in it. They're not working on it. They're not building. 
And if you will labor in the Lord's vineyard, one of the mightiest blessings is that you will fully believe in its power. Because you see that power working in you and in those that you're serving. You want a stronger testimony of the work of God, then start working for God. And you will see the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in such a beautiful light as it's trying to help all of us progress. But he spends just a, a, a breath, a short phrase on Joseph before he shifts the attention back to where it belongs. The ultimate blessing isn't your just testimony of Joseph, it's your testimony of Jesus. As he says at the end of verse 9, the Comforter will confirm to you these all-important soteriological truths that Jesus was crucified by sinful men so that he could save those men and everyone else like them. So interesting how he phrases it. He was crucified for the sins of the world. And who did it? Sinful men. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isn't that the line from, O Savior, thou who wearest a crown? Though craven friends betray thee, they feel thy love's embrace. The very foes who slay thee have access to thy grace. I love the mercy inherent in the way that verse is phrased. If we'll simply come to him with a contrite heart, I'm sorry for what I caused you. That's the result of section 19. If we'll just watch with him one hour, won't it change us for every hour that follows? Verse 10, he then shifts to Oliver and says of him, Wherefore it behooveth me that he should be ordained by you, Oliver Cowdery, mine apostle. You ordain him, he ordains you. Again, this is one of those interesting parallels to the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood, where it's like, wait, wait, we're going to we baptize each other and then ordain each other? John the Baptist already did. Well, again, there's an order here. And part of it is the visibility also to see others that are accepting you as authorized servants. Verse 11 and 12 distinguish them a bit. This being an ordinance unto you, Oliver, that you are an elder under his hand, he being the first unto you, that you might be an elder unto this church of Christ, bearing my name. And, so this is for Oliver as well, the first preacher of this church unto the church, and before the world, yea, before the Gentiles, yea, and thus saith the Lord God, lo, lo, to the Jews also. Amen. You see this division of responsibility between the first elder and the second elder? Yes, the order is important. Joseph is first and you are second, Oliver. But among preachers, Oliver, you'll be number one. The first preacher of this church. Joseph will be first as an elder in terms of his leadership. He has gifts of leadership. But Oliver, you have gifts of preaching. And sure enough, five days later, when it's Sunday finally, and ready for the first Sunday services of the Church of Christ, Who's going to be the first preacher at that meeting? Oliver Cowdery will be. Who will be called to that first mission to the Lamanites? This remnant of the house of Israel, the Jews also? Oliver Cowdery will be. His gifts of education and of eloquence, like we saw in that long footnote, will come in handy as a preacher of righteousness. Joseph has a part to play. Oliver has a part to play. They're incredible roles for each of them. And with that, those 60 saints assembled sustain Joseph and Oliver to these positions to which they've been called. Now, there's one last thing we need to hit, one last revelation to cover. It's short. Section 22 was meant for, to answer a question that people that were there assembled that day had on their mind. See, like I said, 
there were people that were being baptized that day on Tuesday, April 6, 1830, including Oren Porter Rockwell, there's an interesting convert, and to Joseph's incredible joy, his own father, Joseph Smith Sr. In fact, Oliver baptized Joseph Smith Sr. And as Joseph was helping his father out of the water, remember Joseph Smith Sr. was one who was speaking of spiritual and not religious. That was him to a T, an incredibly spiritual man. Old men shall dream dreams that prepared him to understand a young man having visions. That was his gift, but he was not a believer in organized religion, didn't want to be a part of it. But now he was joining an organized religion the day that it was organized. And it moved Joseph to tears. In fact, he was so overcome by his own emotion once he helped his father out of the lake that he had to leave. So he wanted to be alone just to try to compose himself. Joseph Knight said that he'd never seen anyone so wrought upon emotionally than Joseph Smith was when he saw his father be baptized. Now others were baptized that day and others wanted to join the church. That's what they came for. But they weren't sure if they needed to be baptized, since they had already been baptized in other churches. I do believe the true church has been restored. I do sustain Joseph Smith as prophet, seer, translator, apostle, elder. But I've already been baptized. I've made a commitment to Christ. So do I need to be baptized again? And this revelation came as their answer. In a nutshell, the answer is yes. You do need to be baptized again. Now part of that is based on priesthood authority. It was lost during the apostasy. It's been restored to the earth through the restoration. Uh, John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John, you can now perform these things authoritatively. But notice the way the Lord answers it. He doesn't just invoke priesthood. That's just the most obvious difference. There's something deeper here, and it should teach all of us a lesson, including those who were baptized by true authority. 22 verse 1, Behold, I say unto you that all old covenants... Have I caused to be done away in this thing? And this is a new and an everlasting covenant, even that which was from the beginning. Now that's an interesting way to describe this covenant. It's new and it's always been there. And it was from the very beginning. Well, wait a minute, is it new then? There, he must mean something a little bit different by old and new, since the new seems to precede even the old. Wait, the new is older than the old? How does that work? Well, it's new and everlasting. It's new in this dispensation. It's just been dispensed to the earth again. But it's been dispensed in the past. This is the same covenant that drove God's plan in premortality. It's the same covenant that motivated Jesus Christ to say, Here am I, send me. It's the same covenant that God gave to Adam and to Enoch, to Noah and to Abraham, to Moses, renewed through Jesus Christ himself. And now... This everlasting covenant that began from even before the beginning is newly confirmed upon you. You understand what this church is for? It's not just some earthly organization. This is the renewal of God's everlasting covenant. I actually love the way part of P. Pratt once said it. See, after Joseph Smith died and there were several splinter groups and people, some wanted to go off in new directions. And of one of them, Party P. Pratt basically said, fine, if people want to follow him, go. If you want to follow a new thing, hatch it up, fine. For we have only the old thing. And then he said this of that old thing. It was old in Adam's day. It was old in Mormon's day and hit up in the earth. And it was old in 1830 when we first began to preach it. 
I love Parley P. Pratt's perspective on this. You want to go soft in some new direction? Fine. Be my guest. All we got is old stuff. And it's always been old. It was old from the day it started. This is God's everlasting covenant. And He is everlasting, unchanging. He still is trying to bring us home. So with that in mind, verse 2 should make sense. Wherefore, although a man should be baptized an hundred times, it availeth him nothing. For you cannot enter in at the straight gate by the law of Moses, neither by your dead works. So it doesn't matter what church you've been baptized in or how many baptisms you've experienced. It's got to be new in this new and extremely old everlasting covenant. I remember in Tennessee meeting a new convert. He was amazing. I lovingly refer to him as my pal Al. And Al is just larger than life. And I remember there was this one, I can't even remember what our, the subject was, but he'd been coming to Institute and just loving what he was learning about the faith. And at one point he basically asked the same question that the people there assembled had asked. Do any of those old baptisms count? You see, he said, I've been baptized in practically every church I've ever met. He was what some people would call a church hopper, but what I would call a seeker of truth. And when he found it, he just, I'm in, and he'd get baptized. And so he asked, did any of those baptisms count for anything? And for some reason, when, I, when he said it, I, the normal answer would have been, no, none of them counted, but the one that you just received did, so stick with that one. And by the way, he has stuck with that one beautifully for the, the last 10 years. But instead of saying that, which is what I intended, I heard myself say to him, that's a really good question. But rather than wonder if any of those baptisms counted, you might want to ask yourself if the one you just received in our church did. And it was like, he was like, huh? Are you, are you questioning that? Should I be questioning that? And then I took him and the whole class to section 22 and just pointed out the verse that I just read here, but used it not to teach about authority, but rather to teach about intent. You see, the baptism he'd received in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints did have true authority. But the question I was pushing on him and upon all of us baptized members of the church was the question of intent. You see, in verse 2, when he says, it doesn't matter how many times you've been baptized elsewhere, if it was law of Moses, if it was a dead work, then it doesn't count for anything because that's not how you enter in at the straight gate. Now, what struck me in that verse was connecting baptism to the law of Moses and to dead works. Now, baptism was performed throughout the Mosaic dispensation. So, yeah, technically you could say, yeah, I guess it's part of the law of Moses too. But that's not how we associate the law of Moses in our minds. For us, the law of Moses was, as Benedi says, a law of performances and ordinances, a strict law to keep them in constant remembrance of the Lord their God. For us, we sometimes reduce the law of Moses to a, a, a checklist mentality. And have I done all of these things? Can I be saved? Look, I see I did it all. But is that what baptism is for? Or the hundred other things we do as members of the church to try to convince ourselves that, that we deserve to get into that straight gate? To me, one of the great lessons that I think the Lord intends for us here is to lay aside the checklist and quit making our church membership into something that resembles Mosaic law. The church of Jesus Christ is true and living. Do we sometimes reduce it to something dead? 
It's meant to infuse us with faith. For us, is it just works instead? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Quit treating it like the law of Moses. But sadly, I see some of us that, that it's like we're going through life on the chain gang and another day as a member of the church of Jesus Christ. Is that all it is to us? Is it a list of to-dos or a following of the Lord of to become? Do you understand what I think the Lord is getting at here? Like I said, forget authority. Focus on intent. And even our own authorized baptism and the membership in the church that has followed it. I pray that we never reduce it to mosaic law and dead works. It's not our membership record number that God is going to check on Judgment Day. It's our changed heart. It's the name of Christ that has changed us into someone like him. That's what the restoration is for. It's what he says in verse 3 and 4. It is because of your dead works that I've caused this last covenant and this church, which embodies it, to be built up unto me, even as in days of old. Why do you think the Lord said that at the first vision? They draw near me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, dead or living. They have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. The Mosaic law can only get you so far. Moses brought you to the bank of the Jordan River. But it's only Joshua, a.k.a. Jesus, that actually crosses over and gets you in. Your works can only get you so far, especially if they're dead ones. It's a living faith in the grace of a living God that actually brings us into his rest. So where does that leave us? Verse 4, enter. Enter ye in at the gate, as I have commanded. And seek not to counsel your God. Amen. There's a little jab there at the end, it feels. It's like, quit, quit telling me what you're going to do or not to do. Well, I'm not going to get baptized again. I already have been. And I, from the, from the best Methodist minister in town. No, it, can, can we get past that? If part of being baptized is to humble yourself and come forward with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, why would you kind of forth, you know, thrust your credentials in my face? Why would you try to counsel God? Can we get past that? What we really need to be doing is simply entering in at the gate. And it's a straight one. It's a narrow one. It requires us to divest ourselves of so much baggage brought on by the natural man. And that's what the restored church is meant to do. It's meant to resurrect us. That's why we are buried in Christ at baptism, so we can be raised again with him into new life. That's why God breathes into prophets and apostles, into elders and priests and teachers and deacons, into every member of the church to bring life to otherwise dead discipleship. Is the restored church restoring you? Are you letting it? Someday we will outgrow the need for it. Elder Maxwell once said that the time would come in the next world when stakes and wards will fall away like so much scaffolding. And what will be left? The eternal family. But in the meantime, are you using the scaffolding for what it was designed to help you construct? Don't take down the scaffolding until the building's finished. And we've got a lot of construction yet to do. May I close today's lesson on theology 
and ecclesiology with a brief lesson on geography. Remember years ago in an institute class I was teaching, trying to help the students understand what the church was for, as opposed to the gospel, what the church itself was meant to accomplish. Trying to teach some of the principles that we've talked about today. But I had a different picture in my mind, literal picture, of how to convey it to them. You see, I put up on the board a world map and started talking about latitude and longitude. I was grateful that as a kid somebody pointed out that latitude rhymes with flat, and so that's the horizontal coordinate. So I was asking students about different latitudes, and I put a list of cities on the board and asked students to place them in order from north to south. And I picked cities like Sydney, Australia, and Oslo, Norway. That hopefully is easy enough to know which is further north than the other. And then some ones in the middle that hopefully were easy enough as well. Cairo, Egypt, London, England, Paris, France. I think we'd do a pretty good job, and my students did, of ranking those from north to south. But then it got a little harder. You see, I split them up into smaller groups and gave each group a card with four or five cities on it. One got the list of Boise, Idaho, Toronto, Canada, Bilbao, Spain, Florence, Italy, and Sapporo, Japan. And I said, okay, go for it. Rank them, place them in order from northernmost to southernmost. And this one was a little bit tricky. The group that got Kansas City, Missouri, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, along with Beijing, China, and Pyongyang, North Korea, they were scratching their heads. And they're starting to compare notes, like, where'd you serve your mission? And have you traveled anywhere? And what was the, what, what's the climate like in those areas? And just trying to rank things more based on hot and cold rather than north and south. Well, that's pretty good. But my favorite part of this little geographical pretest was to show them the answers and to watch the look on their faces when they found out. Because in every group, there was no ranking of north to south. All of those cities essentially lie on the same line of latitude. And that's what blew them away. Boise, Idaho and Toronto, Canada are on the same parallel, and along with Bilbao, Spain and Florence, Italy and Sapporo, Japan. Really? For most people, Philadelphia seems like it would be further north than Kansas City, but they aren't. Same line as Beijing, China and Pyongyang, North Korea, 39th parallel. It's one thing to link Chicago, Illinois, and Providence, Rhode Island on the 41st parallel, but to connect that with Barcelona, Spain, Rome, Italy, and Istanbul, Turkey? Most of the students are like, wait, no, what? the Windy City is the same latitude as Rome? Can that even be possible? Well, it is. And since I teach Institute at the University of Utah, I wanted them to see that Salt Lake City was on the same line of latitude as New York City. That surprised many of them, as well as Madrid, Spain, and Naples, Italy. Yeah, when you're in the middle of a cold Utah winter, Naples, Italy sounds pretty good to me. The point I was trying to make to them is that it's not just latitude that changes things. We think that temperature is all about north to south, but longitude speaks volumes of the difference between cities as well. And here's the point I was trying to make with this little geographical exercise. You see, years ago, President J. Reuben Clark of the First Presidency gave us a talk to religious educators in the church. It's such a foundational text for us that we read it every single year of our careers. It's called The Charted Course of the Church in Education. And he used this example of a sailor at sea, that because of currents and winds and waves constantly trying to blow you off course, it's wise every so often to check your coordinates 
and make sure that you're on the right latitude and longitude to ultimately get to your eventual goal. And then President Clark told us the specific latitude and longitude where we needed to fix our faith. He said that our latitude is Jesus Christ, that we cannot afford to deviate at all from a declaration of his divinity, a testimony of his divine sonship, his role in the premortal plan, his miraculous birth, his sinless life, his selfless sacrifice, his atonement, his death, his resurrection, the promise that he would return. We cannot afford to drift off course from Jesus. But that is only our latitude. And I was trying to explain to these students of mine just how different Salt Lake and Naples are. Do you have any idea how many Christian churches there are in the world? So many who have all found the correct latitude, but have taught of Jesus in so many different ways that it's hard to know exactly what kind of Christ we should be following or what it is that Jesus is inviting us to do. And for that, you have to have the correct longitude as well, which according to President Clark, is the restored gospel of Jesus Christ through the prophet Joseph Smith. Jesus is our latitude. Joseph is our longitude. We check our coordinates and we fix our faith on the divine sonship of Jesus Christ and the prophetic calling of his prophet, Joseph Smith. By these things we know, to borrow that language from section 20, where we ought to be. Speaking personally, after decades of studying and working with other churches, as a, as a high school teenager, I got to speak at a Catholic church as part of an interfaith event. And I've never been far from interfaith experiences ever since. Growing up in Los Angeles among very devout and very diverse friends. Eight years raising my own family in Tennessee and encouraging them to carve out space for holy envy from the members of other churches that surround them. Studying at a divinity school, surrounded by amazing people of other faiths doing their very best to bring people to light and truth as they know it. I am so grateful for churches, for the religious aspect of human existence. And to watch those churches gravitate and draw their members to that line of latitude that is Jesus Christ is incredibly inspiring to me. I have been drawn to Jesus and felt of his spirit at Catholic Mass or at Protestant worship services from Methodist to Baptist, from Presbyterian to Episcopalian to Quaker and everything in between. And I have been drawn to God as I have worshiped in Muslim mosques and in Jewish synagogues, as I've worshiped with friends of the Baha'i faith, I am so grateful for good people everywhere that are looking up and reaching out and making a difference in the world. Please understand that huge space I always leave for holy envy when I say in all humility that I am grateful for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am grateful for the line of longitude that we are on as it intersects with that all-important line of latitude, which is Jesus Christ. I testify of the importance of checking our coordinates, 
and setting our sights on the point where the resurrection meets the restoration. I loved my years of divinity school as I got to study all of these things and see people becoming ministers of whatever faith it might be. But it has dawned on me that life in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is divinity school for all of us. We learn theology whenever we study our scriptures. We learn homiletics every time we give a talk. We learn liturgics when we get to be involved in baptisms or the sacrament. We learn pastoral care as we're out as ministering brothers and sisters. Do you see what the Lord is trying to do? He's trying to turn us into Christians. He's trying to turn us into people like Him. And I've never seen anything do it quite like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's why I believe and it's where I belong.